My journey as a Superman fan started with a tattered red cape blowing in the wind. That ending rocketed me forward like a red-blue blur through a decade-long origin story and poignant tales of self-discovery and fatherhood, and backwards to the character's very beginnings. Now, on this podcast, we journey together across time and media to examine the stories that have defined the Man of Steel. Welcome to Digging for Kryptonite, a Superman fan journey. I'm your host, Anthony Desiato. Joining me to discuss the unmade Tim Burton, Nicolas Cage movie, Superman Lives, is returning guest, comic book artist, V. Ken Marion. Welcome back. What's up, Anthony? Thanks for having me back. Super excited to talk about this. There is electricity in the air tonight. I know you and I are both very excited to have this conversation. Other than a few text exchanges, we've not talked about our thoughts on Superman Lives, the would-be 1998 movie that, that never was. Dude, I've got my uh, my regular water here. I've got my my coconut water. I'm ready to strap in and talk about this for like a good however long it takes. I'm, I'm, I'm prepared for two hours. I, I don't know. I don't know where this goes, but I'm prepared. That's a good man. And healthier than me. I too, I do have a bottle of water. I also have a, a little glass of cask strength maker's mark uh, on the rocks here. Nice. So I got both sides covered. I I can't. I actually have to thank you because you were the one who first suggested a while back that we do an episode on this unmade Superman project. And it was one of those things that had been on my radar and I knew about it, but I had never really spent a lot of time investigating it, to be perfectly honest. And so your interest and your enthusiasm in it sincerely really pushed me to to do this. And it turned out to be quite the education in this unmade movie. So thank you. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, no, I, I, um, a little background on the movie. Um, it was made by a filmmaker named John Schnepp, who has passed away, um, a few years back from a stroke, I believe. Um, but I used to watch them all the time on Collider Live and Collider Heroes. They were YouTube shows and like every day, like they were daily shows. They did on movie news and video game news, superhero news. And he was like a panelist on there every day. And he, when this movie, he, I think, I think this came out in 2015. Um, but he talked about it a lot. Like, and, I, I had never seen it, but it, I was always super interested in it. And I remembered it from when I was a kid. Like I remember being a kid and my dad telling me in the newspaper, Nicholas Cage is going to be Superman. And like, yeah, like I, I, so it just kind of like, I always want to watch it. And like, when we started doing this, you know, I um, just, you know, really thought this would be a great thing to do. And I'd never seen it. So, you know, I, I'm, I'm psyched, you know, I'm very, very psyched. Yeah. So what you're pointing to is part of our homework for this episode. Not not to pat ourselves on the back, but we did some solid prep for this. I think that's fair to say. So you're referring to that 2015 documentary, uh, What Happened, The Death of Superman Lives. Mm-hmm. Right? Or The Death of Superman <laughs> Lives, What Happened. Yes, The yes. Death of Superman Lives, What Happened, yeah. Yes. Filmed by John Schnepp. Yeah, yeah the, late, the late John Schnepp. Um, yeah. Sad that he passed. Uh, and the documentary was incredibly interesting and informative and thorough it really covered a lot and with the exception of nick cage himself although he is represented via some inter- some archival footage uh, and some key archival footage for sure uh you know schnepp yeah. was able to interview most of the key players in all of this and really Everybody, was able to yeah. paint quite the picture of this movie that could have been in addition to that see we took it a little step further there's this company got to give a shout out to uh was it newverse Creative, I believe, is the name of the company. And they have a YouTube channel, and they're also on Spotify. And they created audio dramas based on two of the unused scripts, one of Kevin Smith's drafts 
and then a, a subsequent draft by screenwriter Dan Gilroy, who came aboard the project once Burton was attached to direct. Yeah, which I believe that so Kevin Smith was the first draft, and then Dan Gilroy was the third draft. There was there was a guy in the middle. I can't I can't remember. I forgot his name, but there Wesley was someone Strick. in the middle. Yeah, he was the one that Tim Burton brought on, right? Yes. Yeah, and then Dan Gilroy was the one that the studio then brought on because they thought the Wesley Strick script was not mainstream enough or something. But but yeah, so we, we didn't get that middle. We didn't get to hear that middle script, but um, we saw the beginning of where it started, and then the shooting script, which I think, which is essentially what was essentially going to be the movie. So yes, I do believe that that Gilroy script that we listened to the audio drama of. I do believe that was very close to what they were preparing to shoot. Mm -hmm. So I think we have a pretty good sense of the scope of this movie and its development. And I would imagine people listening to this episode, there's probably a range. There might be a few people who never even heard of Superman lives. I doubt that's a ton of people, but there might be a few. I suspect there are a bunch who know something about it, but maybe haven't done the full deep dive into it. And maybe there are some misconceptions we can help clear up in this. And then I'm sure there mm-hmm. are others who, like like ourselves, you know, really did spend some time with the documentary and the concept art and and maybe even those audio dramas. But I think regardless of which category you fall into, audience member, hopefully we'll, we'll have you covered here and it'll be a fun conversation. So I could save this for the end. This would be a fine sort of concluding question, but... It's, I, I want to throw it to you at the very beginning. What is your overall big picture take? I mean, we'll unpack everything, but do you look at this, now that we know as much as we do about this project, do you look at it and say, man, we dodged a bullet, this would have been a disaster of a Superman movie? Or are you like, man, we really missed out, this would have been cool? Man, we really missed out, this would have been awesome. And, and I will say this as as a kid, when I've heard that this, like, because I, like I said earlier, I remember being in like, third or fourth grade and my dad reading it in our local newspaper that Nicolas Cage signed on to be in a Superman movie with Tim Burton. And at, when I was a kid, I was psyched. And like, my imagination was like, Oh, he's going to be like the blue Superman, the blue skin and the white. Like that's cause that was the era of the time. And like, and I just remember thinking like, this is probably going to be really cool. And now after seeing everything that we saw, this movie would have been really, really cool. It would have been very different, but I mean, at the age we were at, dude, like we, we can get into it, but like there would have been so many like cool toys that would have came out of this movie. Like it was, this would have been a great, great superhero movie. Right on. I think, I think I'm mostly with you I, and we'll have more of a sense of this as we move forward. I think you might've been a little bit more taken with the substance of what we would have gotten. I was, I think a little bit more fascinated by just the, the the Hollywood piece of all of this and the behind the scenes and the development process. I was so captivated by that. And this was very enlightening. Although, you know, you and I watched Entourage, so we already knew a lot about how Hollywood works, of course. But this this added a whole other dimension to that. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, after watching this, I do think it's a miracle that any movie gets made, let alone a good movie. Like, you know what I mean? Like, so any movie that comes to screen is like kind of a miracle that like it gets through all these steps and all this like bullshit and red tape, you know? Yeah, for sure. I'll say this. And like I said, we'll unpack all of this as we move forward. But with the exception of Nicolas Cage himself, and that's not a small piece of this, right? That was a very different sort of casting choice for Superman. But otherwise... In terms of the scripts and and even the concept art, which I'm so excited to get your take on, especially as an artist, I didn't feel like this was such a radical departure 
for a Superman movie. I, I sort of, I guess, always had this sense of like, oh man, it would have been this weird, wacky, out there thing. Listening to the two scripts, it, it, I don't think this would have been so jarring for people. No, I really don't. I, I actually think it would have been a really big hit. I think that the Nicolas Cage casting of Superman would have been very akin to, and they bring this up in the documentary, it would have been very akin to the Michael Keaton Batman. Like, I think, I mean, Nicolas Cage is an Oscar-winning actor. He's, he's And this is like, peak Nicolas Cage too. This is like rock con air face off era, Nick Cage when he's like the biggest movie star he ever was right. Right after his Oscar win, like he's a powerhouse at this point. And like, when you see him in the suit, he looks cool. Like he looks really cool. Especially with the long hair and everything. He looks like a good Superman. So I think, yeah, there would have been an initial like, wait, this isn't the Superman that I think of. But I think once people saw the movie, I think there would be a generation of people who would say Nicolas Cage is my favorite Superman. Like, I, I really do believe that. Just like people think that about Michael Keaton. Because Michael Keaton on paper is not Bruce Wayne, right? But, like, he brings something to the character that he's undeniably, like, really cool at it. And, like, he's it's a different take, but it's something that resonates with people. And I think this would have been very, very similar. Yeah, you bring up a bunch of good points, including the fact that people are often very quick to you know, to be dismissive of casting choices. And we've seen enough instances, you know, you bring up Michael Keaton more recently, Ben Affleck, or a few years before that, Heath Ledger in the, in, in the dark Knight. you know, plenty of instances where someone is selected who doesn't necessarily line up with your expectations of who the character is, but they turn in an amazing performance. So mm-hmm. one thing I've certainly learned over these past years is, is to keep more of an open mind. Cause you don't know exactly what you're going to get. I, I guess I'll say this. If, and I don't, I don't know that this was really on my radar much at all in the 90s when it was being developed. Maybe I read about it in Wizard at some point. I feel like that would have been the extent of it. But if, hypothetically, like if you had asked me in the 90s, you know, do you want a Nicolas Cage, Tim Burton, Superman movie? And I was only 10 at the time, but even if I had been older, I probably would have said no because I would have felt like that would have precluded a Superman movie more in line with what I envisioned, right? That probably would have been my take at the time. But now looking at the history of Superman movies and seeing this, this vacuum in the nineties, it's like, man, to see, yeah. to see Nick Cage and Tim Burton's take on this, Chris Rock is Jimmy Olsen. It's like, yeah, it been great. I would have really yeah. liked to have seen this. <laughs> Dude, Sandra Bullock was going to be Lois Lane. Like it would have been awesome. Like Christopher Walken was Brainiac. Like guys, this movie would have been like off the wall. Awesome. Like, yeah, I have to tell you, and we'll talk about the casting and and the the characters they were planning to use. But I had the documentary talked about how they were they were thinking about Christopher Walken for Brainiac. But when I listened to the audio drama of the Gilroy script, I had forgotten about that. Yeah. And in those opening minutes, as Krypton is being destroyed and Brainiac is hunting Jor-El and Brainiac starts to speak and it's this Christopher Walken impression. (laughs) It was the funniest thing. And I was like, oh, yeah, that's right. That's what they were thinking for this. I, I don't. I don't think he would have talked like that in the movie. That's the thing. Like the the the, daughter, the audio drama we listen to does a very over the top. Like, hey, Jorel. You know, he does a very like. Like, I think we've gotten a much more like sinister Christopher Walken than, than that. But he again, he's a really good actor. You know, like I think he would have brought it, man. Yes. So, for anyone not familiar with any of this, we'll sort of back up a little bit. So, this was a movie that again was planned to ultimately be released in 1998. Uh, of course, the, that would have been the, the 60 year anniversary of Superman's debut in 1938. Warner Brothers had been trying for years to get a Superman movie franchise up off the ground after the critical and commercial failure of Superman IV, The Quest for Peace. 
not an enviable position to be in. I, I feel like that was probably a very tough time after that. And I suppose after the success of the death of Superman in, in, in the comics, that sort of became the basis for what their next movie attempt was going to be. And in all of these different versions of the scripts that were talked about and that we listened to, they do all follow the same basic structure where Luther and Brainiac team up, send Doomsday to Earth who fights and kills Superman. Superman is ultimately resurrected in a depowered state with the aid of Kryptonian technology and ultimately like triumphs. A, yeah, yeah, and it ultimately comes back. And, and that part when he come, the part when he's recuperated, which was in all the scripts, was that he has this like Kryptonian biomechanical kind of suit that like encases him. So it would have been, the idea would have been that there would have been three looks for Superman. There would have been his like, the beginning, his standard blue classic look. Then he'd have this like tech mech bioorganic Kryptonian suit that covered him like head to toe, like you couldn't see his face or anything. And then, which had some really cool concept art for that. And then his last suit was going to be a black suit, right? With the silver S with a red cape, which looked again, badass. Like I thought it looked great. So yeah, man, like, yeah, for sure. And you mentioned the costume in the documentary, they show you the development of the regeneration suit or one iteration of it and all of the lights that they built into it and everything. Yeah. I think as far as misconceptions, I think that was maybe the first costume visual that people saw. Yeah. And there was a lot, people were up in arms like that. This was going to be the look that, you know, and I think this was well after we knew the movie wasn't going to happen, but I think people like, Oh, what a disaster this would have been. It's like, that was not his main costume. Yeah. No, that wasn't even his regeneration armor suit. I was talking about like, they talked about that in the movie that that would, that would have been a three minute sequence when he's like in like the bad, the Kryptonian bath. And it's like kind of resuscitating him. He would have had this like light suit that kind of like shot the, the, the UV light into his body, which is like, which again, that's a cool idea. <laughs> like I don't know, and, and it looked cool. Like the, the the when you see the the stunt guys like trying it on and stuff, and they're moving around, and like the lights are kind of like going all through like the musculature and stuff. Like it, it looked cool for like 1998 or just, but 96 probably when that they made that. But yeah, that's I don't know. I thought it looked cool. I thought it looked cool, and it it I really appreciated the artistry that went into that because today that would have just been a motion capture thing, and they would have done it all in post. And they yeah. built that. I, I was very impressed by that. You know, and just to yeah. see, again, the work that goes into it. So, again, you have Warner Brothers for years trying to get another version of the franchise off the ground. Uh, notorious <laughs> producer John Peters acquires the rights from the Salkins. Uh, so he enters the picture. And he's a big figure in, in the documentary. And at a certain point, Kevin Smith, right, in the 90s, hot off of Clerks and Mallrats, even though Mallrats didn't do well but you know he has this meeting with warner brothers talking about projects that he might be able to to write for and they mention that they're trying to develop superman and he jumps on that and i bring Mm -hmm. up kevin smith obviously he plays a big role in this but that's also where i really i think this project really came onto my radar because are you like what level of kevin smith fan if any are you i mean i've seen a bunch of his movies not all of them i'm not like a diehard but like i've listened to a bunch of his podcasts and i I like his vibe you know and I, i think he's funny and and I listened to his stand-up, his stand-up show where he talked about this movie before. You know, I've, I've seen that, obviously. And so, yeah, no, I, I like Kevin Smith. I like his podcasts. I, I, he doesn't do a ton of them anymore. But, like, yeah, I, I mean, I like him as, like, a – I thought he was hilarious in this this documentary. Like, he was very, very funny. And I like how enthusiastic and I love how much he loves comics, you know? Like, 
I'm a, I'm a big proponent of him just being like such a huge fan, you know? So yes, yeah. yeah, Kevin sure. Smith fan. I'd say that. Yeah. Gotcha. Yeah. If you had asked me 10 years ago, I would have definitely been in the diehard category. I mean, I used to have in, in my parents' house, I used to have a little cabinet. It wasn't huge. It was a little cabinet and it was basically my view askew shrine. <laughs> and I had all of the DVDs and not just of the movies, but his evening with Kevin Smith Q and A's. And that's where, you know, the Superman oh, lives wow, comes okay. into play yeah. and the in action figures that they did based on his movies. I mean, I was, yeah. I've gone to oh, see wow, him. Wow. I've gone to see him live twice. I've met him at a book signing. Like I, I, you know, I'm still a Kevin Smith fan, but it's the fandom has diminished a little bit over the past decade. But, you know, certainly at the time that he was talking about this, I was there for, and I remember watching one of those evening with Kevin Smith DVDs when he used to go around and do these, you know, college Q and A's and hearing him talk about it. And it was fascinating. I mean, I imagine most people listening to this, you've probably come across it at some point. If not, you know, you can search for it on YouTube. It'll come right up. It's 10 minutes or whatever long it is of him telling the story. And it's a lot of it is repeated in the documentary, but the, the actual Q and A does go into even more depth and it's, it's worth mm-hmm. listening to. Uh, so famously, right, Kevin Smith tells a story of meeting with John Peters. John Peters, who was the former hairdresser of Barbara Streisand, who then became this, this movie producer. He produced Batman. Produced yes. Batman. 89. Yeah. And yeah, he's very, a very interesting figure. And uh, so Smith talks about how when they had their initial meeting, Smith ha- uh, Peters had these three conditions, right? Superman can't fly. Superman can't wear the costume. And he has to fight a giant spider in the third act. Now, interestingly, Peters disputes numbers one and two in the documentary. Yeah. What'd you make of that? Yeah. I thought that was interesting. I mean, I feel like it must have happened because that's like a weird thing for Kevin Smith to make up. You know what I mean? <laughs> right. Like, so like, I feel like it, it did happen. Maybe it was communicated differently. Like maybe, maybe Kevin Smith, like maybe he was like, listen, he can't wear the costume. Like we need to make his costume cooler, like, or something like that. Or like, you know, I don't want him just like floating around. Like he needs to like fly cooler. Like may- maybe it was like a little bit in between, but more than likely it was probably like the conditions were probably there. You know what I mean? He, he seemed in the interview a little all over the map, I will say. So like not Kevin Smith, John Peters, he Mm. seemed a little, a little erratic and a a little like kind of like bouncing all over the walls. He later on, we'll get to it later on, but he had a funny uh, line about Superman's Cape and how he would use the Cape. that I thought was very funny. Uh, But um yeah. So, so what, what are your take? What's your takeaway? Yeah. You know, say, say what you will about Kevin Smith. I've never gotten the sense he's a liar. So I would, yeah, tend, yeah, right. I would tend to, to go with his version. I, you know, I think maybe there's something to what you said. Maybe there was something that was a little lost in the communication, but if those were two of the conditions, I wouldn't be surprised. Cause also, you know, when you look at the arc of the movie, the bones of those conditions are still there in certain respects, right? The fact that, mm-hmm. you know, the, the traditional red and blue costume is only in the beginning part of the movie. And mm-hmm. when he comes back from the dead, you know, he does ultimately get his full powers, power set restored by the end of the movie, but he spends a significant portion depowered. Yeah. So I feel like there might be something to, to all of that. But my favorite part was in the documentary, Schnapp asks him about the third condition as well, this giant spider. And Peters goes, oh, well, that's the Thanagarian snare beast. As if yeah. he came As if up he made with that. that. 
<laughs> I know, I know. I was cracking up with that because he's like, oh, no, it was a Thanagarian snare beast. And then it cuts to Kevin Smith. And he's like, yeah, I call it the Thanagarian snare beast. You know, a nice Hawkman reference. Like, it's like, I, I really doubt John Peters knows what Thanagar is. You know what I mean? Like, I really, really doubt that. I, you know, watching that, I was just like, man, the balls on this guy to just be like, he says it as if it was his idea. And he's like, of course, I'm not aspire a Thanagarian snare beast. Because, right, <laughs> Smith Smith tells the story, certainly in the Q&A and I guess to an extent in the documentary as well, about how he was talking to the studio executives about this. He was like, you know, I, I, I met with Peters and he had these conditions. They were like, oh, did he bring up the spider? So, you know, like at, at the studio side, they knew he had this thing about the spider and they were like, listen, just don't call it a spider. And Kevin Smith, according to his version, was like, well, what if we call it a Thanagarian snare beast? So and I that makes a lot more sense than Peters himself coming up with that. I agree. I don't know how up yeah, on Thanagar yeah. he, he would be. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so I, I don't know. Where, where do you want to go next? Do you want to talk about the, the version of, of Smith's script that we listen to? Yeah, sure. I mean, I was really shocked listening to it. Um, it had very little Kevin Smith isms. You know what I mean? Like it had very little slang. It had very little, um, like quippy dialogue. It, it felt incredibly faithful to the comic books. Like if you've never listened to this, this or read this script, it is like like straight up like a DC comic book of the 1990s. And it, I was shocked. And, and I actually got a little uh, misty eyed at one point in the, in, in Kevin Smith's draft with, with the audio drama and the music and everything, the suit that, that like the healing mech biomechanical suit that he wears also has like an AI component to it. So it's like sentient. And there's a point where like it, it, it kind of like, I can't remember exactly why, but it, it sort of sacrifices power to restore Superman and in doing so, he like touches Superman's chest and like his suit kind of morphs into the silver S and the suit goes Superman lives. And like th- that was a good moment, man. That was a really, really good moment that I thought like listening to. It, I was like, this is like some epic shit that he wrote. Like it was it was a good script. Yeah, I enjoyed it. I would say I enjoyed it overall. I, too, was surprised at how not like a Kevin Smith script it sounded. I mean, look, yeah, it. I wasn't expecting you clerks, didn't know, but still, no, but, but I mean like, but you've read his comic books though. Like, like his Batman comic, like they've, they, he has like a flavor to his work. Like if you didn't know he wrote this, I, I don't think anybody would be able to pick it out. Honestly. The, the only way you would know is that he threw in a lot of names that view askew people would recognize. So governor Caitlin Bree, her son, so for the character from clerks, uh, okay. her son was Brody from Mallrats. There's okay. uh, the Rick Darris mention. That's a, a, another figure in the View Askew universe. So, they, like, there were a few little things like that. But otherwise, yeah, you. Now, the flip side of that is, and I don't know how much of this is the script versus the performers of the audio drama. Because there was, and I so appreciate what, what this company did in terms of creating the audio drama. They did a wonderful job. The music was great. But there, was, there were varying levels in terms of the vocal performances. Yeah. And so I don't know. I didn't find, I didn't think the dialogue was that great for especially for Kevin Smith who's known for his dialogue. I mean, what did you think? I mean, yeah, it, it, there were definitely parts of it that were a little clunky, you know, like in terms of like the dialogue, especially the interactions between like Lois and Superman, some of that was a little clunky. Um but but yeah, like overall though, like I thought like again, it was a first draft, right? Like I mean, not I guess not the first draft, but like it, it wasn't going to be the shooting script, like because it was before Tim Burton came on. So there definitely would have been more rewrites to go through it 
So like, but overall, like, I really didn't think it was like, I listened to it. Like I was shocked at how quickly I got into it, listening to it. Yeah. I had a similar experience. And yes, to your point, just to reiterate, this was before Tim Burton came aboard and we'll get to that in, in a minute. But when he does, the Kevin Smith script goes away, even though again, the basic structure will remain. But at this point yeah. in time, it's really John Peters who is shepherding this forward and has commissioned yeah. the script from Kevin Smith, again, with these with these various parameters. Although in the version that we read, he is in the costume and he is flying. So I guess those early conditions yeah. you know, were, went away. But well, What I thought was interesting in the Kevin Smith script was that it him and Lois, like there is no love triangle. Like him and Lois are like already, like she knows who he is. They're in a relationship, like, like, like it, it felt like a nineties comic book, like flat out, like it, it to, to, I mean, Batman had a little appearance in it. Like there was like a lot of just DC kind of like lore, the, the suit in the Kevin Smith version, the, the healing suit is called the eradicator suit, which when they change that, when, when Tim Burton comes on board, they change it to call it K they call the suit K. Yeah. Um, but, but yeah, it's, um, yeah, man, I, uh, lost my train of thought now because there's just so much about it that i'm trying to remember but but yeah no it was it was uh yeah it, it, i was pretty surprised yeah i and again it's one of those things especially being such a big kevin smith fan i'm kind of surprised i had never read the script because it's out there but from mm-hmm. you know what it is going back to what i was saying before this never uh, this never really captured my imagination all that much i'll, I'll be honest for whatever reason uh, again, I had heard about it and I heard Kevin Smith talking about it and that was the extent of it. I never felt compelled to necessarily investigate it further. Again, the documentary came out seven years ago at this point and I never watched yeah. it, which as a Superman fan and as a documentarian myself, it's like kind of crazy that I wouldn't have watched it. But I, I, for whatever reason, I guess I sort of always looked at this as like, well, it's a project that didn't happen. And yeah. based on the limited knowledge I had of it, I sort of always wrote it off as something that I probably wouldn't have liked anyway. So like this was just never really on my radar, but that's why I've had so much fun for, for this podcast because it's like it's it's fascinating and it's better than I thought mm-hmm. it was going to be. Yeah, you know the Superman lives uh, piece yeah. of it, but you know you bring up Superman and Lois, and I know I'm jumping way ahead, but what really it's, it's so interesting in comparing the scripts because, like you said in the in the Kevin Smith version, she already knows his identity; they're in a relationship, and he wants to progress to the next level. He's talking about the future and a marriage. And she's the one who's who's hesitant to take further mm-hmm. steps. In the Dan Gilroy script, it's it's totally flipped, right? She, she, you know, yeah. She's having a relationship with Superman, but there's so much she doesn't know about him. And he, he's creating this distance. Yeah, and them. she doesn't know he's Clark Kent either. She doesn't know he's Clark. Which I, I can't wait to get into the Nick Cage once Nick Cage comes on board. Because like, I love their, his take on Superman and Clark Kent, which from what we saw. Like, <laughs> uh yeah. But yeah, so so again, especially in comparing the scripts, like it's interesting to see how structurally they're largely the same, but they do play out. Uh, they do play out differently. Um, but yeah, to your point, it definitely does feel it does feel like a like a comic book brought to life. And there is this cameo by Batman during the funeral sequence where he takes over the feed on the huge screen in Metropolis, but like the equivalent of Times Square. And he gives this message of hope to the people of Metropolis. And you got to give Kevin Smith credit because now you watch any of these superhero movies. Of course you expect to see cameos from elsewhere in the, in the universe, but you never got anything like that in the nineties or earlier. I 
I love in the documentary where Kevin Smith talks about it. He's like, yeah, man, that was just that was just real fan wank off shit. You know, like I got one chance to do this. I'm going to throw it all in there. <laughs> like, you know, like, and it, it, was, it, it probably would have worked. Like it probably would have been Val Kilmer or George Clooney. I'm not sure who, who it was at that point was when they would have filmed this, but it probably would have been them because it was the same Tim Burton produced those movies, you know, so. Right. Yeah. Or, or, you know, and I don't know, I don't know where I read this, but I feel like there was some speculation or hope that they would get even, you know, potentially, uh, you know, Michael Keaton if they, although I guess by that, that was in the Smith script, but it didn't make it to subsequent versions when Burton came on board. So. Oh, that's true. Yeah. Yeah. uh, In any event, but yeah, you know, stuff like that was, was really cool. And what I really appreciated in, in all the versions that we heard about was that we jump into a world in Metropolis that's already established you know Mm -hmm. you know i love a good superman origin story i do yeah but at the same time there was something really cool about you know the kevin smith he just he exists so in the smith script it opens with brainiac in space and he's looking for a power source and he sets his sights on earth but then we jump to metropolis and lex is giving this speech about uh an anti he's evil he's like a business yeah he's like an evil businessman too like he's uh yeah like he's not like land land uh tycoon of like the yeah, he's like the '90s Lex Luthor, you know. Right. Yeah. There's no real estate schemes here, and then he 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 hires Deadshot to mm-hmm. to put out this hit on the governor, and Superman intervenes, and and yeah, Superman's an established figure in this world, and the dynamics are already at play, and it's really cool because you, I feel like so often we we don't get that. We always either start with an origin story, or we're at a minimum we're spending time to set everything up, which is fine. But it was really cool to just jump in he's already in a relationship mm-hmm. with lois she already knows his secret i that was mm-hmm. cool that was a cool take and i wouldn't have necessarily expected that especially for a movie that was this was not a continuation of the donner franchise yes. which is what i loved about it like like i love i i say this every time we talk about it like the first christopher reeve superman movie is one of my top five movies of all time favorite superhero movie but it it, it belongs where it is like like i like Superman returns to me was such a misfire because that was like a dour, somber, pale imitation of the Christopher Reeve movie. And it just, it just too much looking backwards. This felt like we're doing something new, like all new, all different. Like even down to what Krypton looked like, they they went for like a more like biomechanical look to the whole city as opposed to ice, you know, like just, just different things like that. And like, like you're saying, like jumping right into this world where like Superman and Lois, they're completely new versions that are like, but you're establishing them just hit the ground running. Like I thought that was such a great take. Yes. Yes. I was very pleasantly surprised by that. It's like, yeah, this is pretty refreshing. I wish we had more stuff like this. And look, as a, as someone who got into comics with the death of Superman, as I've talked about extensively, it was, you know, it was cool. The fact that this was going to be the basis. It's not, a, a totally mm-hmm. faithful adaptation, obviously, but it takes its inspiration and it hits a lot of the same beats. What I also appreciated about the Smith script was that even though we didn't get the four replacement Superman or anything like that, like you said, we do get the Eradicator as the one who mm-hmm. revives him and then forms this mechanical suit around him, which mm-hmm. gives us Eradicator, but also in a steel, way, a little steel. Bit. Yeah, so you get yeah, a little yeah. bit of steel, you get a little bit of Eradicator. So I thought that was cool. Yeah. Yeah, no, it was, and, and it's, it, I feel like the fact that that script, even though they replaced him, they still use basically the, the bones of it in every draft going like, it, like the things that changed were more like details. It wasn't like the major arc was still the same arc through like 
throughout the whole thing, you know? So it was, it was a solid, like overall plot, you know? Yes. That was the other thing that was, was surprising to me. And Kevin Smith talks about in, in both the Q and a and the documentary of how he, I guess, sort of shot himself in the foot because the studio had asked him at a certain point, like who, who would, who would you get to direct this? He's like, Tim Burton. And look what he did with yeah. Batman. And he sealed his own fate because Tim Burton instantly jettisoned the Kevin Smith script yeah. when he came aboard. But, but yeah, I do think there were, there were solid bones there. Cause like you said, it really remains intact and even things get flipped. Like the example that I gave with Superman and Clark and Lois that gets flipped, but it's still, but the story dealing with the their same. relationship. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah. And even, you know, you mentioned in the Gilroy script, it's, it's K this Kryptonian technology instead of the eradicator but again still serving the same essential function of reviving him protecting him which which honestly i think was a good choice because if you saw their version of what they intended k to be was kind of like this like stuffed animal kind of looking thing that like then grew up with him like you could see that as a toy being sold like when i was watching with laura and laura was like that thing's so cute i would have had this as a kid and like if that like toy was called the eradicator, it would have been weird, right? Like you're <laughs> buying your kid an eradicator doll. You know what I mean? Whereas like, K- there's something acute about like, K- you know what I mean? Like it, it, Krypton, like, like I think it was a good choice, you know, like I, I, the older I get, the more I don't want things to be just faithful one-to-one adaptations. Cause I feel like what's the point of doing that? Like it already exists in one form. Why just translating it like one for one, you know, like the new Lion King movie that came out that was like a one-to-one translation, but now it's like photorealistic animation as opposed to like cartoon animation. Like it just doesn't make sense. Like to me, it's like bring something new to it. And like this brought so much new lore to Superman that like I thought would have been really cool and would have like struck a chord. And that K, the K part of it, I think really worked. Yeah, I agree. And we'll, you know, in a couple of weeks, and I'll tease this a little bit more later in, in this episode, but in a couple of weeks, you'll be back and we're going to kick off our event looking at the Superman of Richard Donner, both Donner's direct work as well as the influence of his work in subsequent projects. And you know, like yourself, I have a lot of respect and admiration and affection for Superman the movie, but I do, I do feel frustration. And I'll talk about this more when we do our Donner episode, but I do feel a lot of frustration when fans are so resistant to anything different. Because it doesn't mm-hmm. line up, especially with that. It's like, it's it's wonderful that we have that movie. You can go watch that anytime you want, but that's not yeah. the only way that you can present these characters. So to whatever extent anticipated fan backlash, you know, might have killed this project, it's unfortunate. Because now, Butterfly Effect, you well, don't know. And this is the thing where it's hard for me to say 100%, like, I wish Superman Lives had happened because does the butterfly effect happen and we ultimately don't end up with the Snyder verse? Cause I would not sacrifice man of steel yeah, and, I, I, and, and, yeah. and Zack Snyder's justice league. But Agreed. otherwise, yeah. like if I had to sacrifice Superman returns to have seen Superman lives, it probably would. Fuck yeah. <laughs> Fuck yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's not even a question. Like I, I feel bad for Superman returns, like for, for Brandon Routh. Cause I think he was a really good Superman. I think he had the potential to be one of the great Superman, but just everything about that movie, like the tone, the script, the direction, the visual style of it, like it just, it's way too much trying to be the Richard Donner Superman. And like to its detriment, like that movie didn't do well. Like it was very like lukewarm. Like I remember the summer it came out, I was psyched for it. And like people coming out of the theater were just like, cause I worked at the movie theater at the time when it came out and people were just kind of like, that was kind of boring. Like, and it just, it, it, it was literally like a one-to-one. It was like the same story beats as the first Superman movie. You know, he catches a plane instead of a helicopter. Like it's like literally the same shit happened. And like, I, I just, I, I think that if 
this movie had come out, this Superman Lives came out, definitely would have had Superman Returns. But I think there's enough time that maybe you would have had still had the Snyderverse. And maybe people would have been more into the Snyderverse because there would have been more of a, a public consciousness of, hey, this character can be adaptable the same way Batman is, right? Like, you, you never get that thing with Batman where people are like, this isn't Adam West, and fuck that because it's not Adam West. Like, we had Adam West, which was a cultural phenomenon. We had Tim Burton's, which is a cultural phenomenon. Then we had the Val Kilmer and George Clooney, part of that Tim Burton, which still worked, you know? Then we had the the Christian Bale, which is my favorite one, but, like, people still grab, like, I just feel like, the more versions of it, the less, the less people are resistant to change. I think, you know, that is a fantastic point and very well taken. I agree. I agree with all of that. That's I'm going to, I'm going to ponder that further. Cause I think that's, there's really something to be said and I, you know, we're speculating, but I, yeah, you can't help but wonder if the Snyder verse in particular, assuming it still unfolded the way it did, if it would have been received differently. I think there's a lot to be said for that. Let's take a quick commercial break and then we will pick up our discussion when we come back. We'll be right back. Flat Squirrel Productions is an affiliate of BCW Supplies. The next time you need to restock on comic book bags, boards, boxes, and more, be sure to use promo code FSP to save 10% on your order. It helps support the show too. Thank you. Acme Comics is a locally owned and operated full-service comic book store in Greensboro, North Carolina, for people of all ages and walks of life. Established in 83, this nine-time Eisner Award nominee uses their collective knowledge and resources to connect you with the best material available. They are ready and excited to assist you in navigating the wide world of comics. In addition to weekly new releases, graphic novels, and merchandise, they pride themselves on their significant contemporary and vintage back-issue selection. Mail order subscriptions to new releases are available. All offerings are available to anyone, anywhere, via mail order. Follow Acme on social media and eBay. Listen to the Acme cast on all podcast services. And visit acmecomics.com for much more. Film lovers and filmmakers should check out these festivals. Brightside Tavern in Jersey City. Hang on to your shorts in Asbury Park. Point Lookout on Long Island. And In the Cut in Bloomfield, New Jersey. Event details and submission info can be found at filmfreeway.com. Follow the fests on social media for updates on discounts, tickets, and more. Also, be sure to listen to the Hang On To Your Shorts and Cullen On Film podcasts available via a shared universe network. If you're a fellow father out there, or if you're just interested in hearing a fun conversation, check out Shadadigans, a weekly podcast by dads sharing their dad experiences. Listen, relate, and laugh. One of the hosts has been a guest of this show, Justin DeVoe. In recent years, Justin has embarked on a truly remarkable fitness journey, which you can see for yourself on Instagram at Real Life Lobo. And if you're looking for guidance on your own fitness journey, check out at Iron and Honor. And we're back. So a couple of just quick administrative notes. Uh, this is the last episode of Digging for Kryptonite that I'm putting out on YouTube. Uh, so since almost the beginning, I've been putting out audio versions and video versions and I've been notifying the YouTube audience, uh, but for, for the general audience, and again, if you're listening to this, then it doesn't necessarily apply to you, but, uh, moving forward, uh, the podcast will only come out in audio form. So hopefully everyone is subscribed to the podcast via your audio podcast platform of choice. Apple, Google, Amazon, Spotify, we're, we're on all of them. Uh, so please make sure that you are subscribed. But if somehow you only or primarily consume the podcast by watching 
the video versions on YouTube, those video versions uh, will end. But of course, the audio editions will continue. And in fact, next week is episode 49, and I'll be joined by my buddy Ralph Puma to talk about Grant Morrison's Rock of Ages storyline from JLA, as well as Final Crisis, stories that were inspirations for Zack Snyder's vision of the DC Universe. And it's coming out next week because we're at just about the one-year anniversary of the release of the Snyder Cut, so I thought that would be appropriate. And then the week after that, Ken, you'll be back for episode 50, our 50th episode, anniversary edition, and that's the kickoff to that big Richard Donner event that I was talking about before. So a lot of fun stuff to come, and I'm, I'm so excited for all of it, and especially to, to celebrate 50 episodes and to talk Superman the movie with you, because I know we've been talking about talking about it for a while, so it'll be fun. I'm really excited, but I'm also like really excited to listen to the Ralph Puma episode because you had recently uh, shared some of his music with me. And if your listeners don't know, Ralph Puma has, he's on Spotify. He's got some really awesome pop punk songs that are, you know, just great. So I've, I've been listening to them a lot. And uh, so it's, it'll be, I'll be psyched to hear him talk. You know, I messaged him on Instagram and I was like, dude, I'm a fan. It was was pretty cool to connect with him on that. Oh, that's awesome. I love, it's very cool to me when the guests of the show connect with each other and we've had numerous instances of that and that's a wonderful thing. So that's some of what we have uh, coming up. So shortly we'll get to the the portion of the story where Tim Burton comes aboard and, and Nicolas Cage is attached. But while we're still talking about the Kevin Smith version, one funny bit, another another edict of John Peters was that, you know, there had to be an action beat every 10 minutes or whatever it was. And so that led to this request for Brainiac to fight polar bears uh, at the Fortress of Solitude. And, you know, Smith tells this whole story about first Peters is like, well, can he fight Superman's guards? And Kevin Smith is like, he's Superman. He doesn't have, and it's the Fortress of Solitude. He wouldn't have guards, that whole thing. But listening to the audio drama, again, I had sort of forgotten about it. Same thing with the Christopher Walken bit. And all of a sudden, it's just like this little battle with polar bears. It was, uh, it was kind of hilarious. Yeah, yeah, I, I love, I love when Kevin Smith is talking about that in the documentary, and he says he went to, like the Warner Brothers exec was like, "Why is he killing animals?" And he's like, "Peters wants me to fight him to have him fight a polar bear." I, I don't know. I just put it in there. Like, while we're talking about Peters, he he doesn't mince words when he talks about the, his perceived quality of Kevin Smith's script, right? Because I guess oh, yeah. Chuck asks he kinda, him, he, he kind of craps on it a little bit, yeah. Yeah, I forget. I don't have the exact quote, but it's something to the effect of it wasn't well crafted. Like Kevin yeah, Smith is not like a he, professional polished screenwriter. That was the gist. Yeah, he of wasn't it. seasoned. He wasn't like seasoned. He was like amateur. Like that was kind of like the vibe that he I, he might have used those exact words. Like I, I honestly can't remember word for word what he said, but it was something along those lines. Yeah. So again, get just getting that some of the behind the scenes in in the movie industry. That, like I said, was one of the I, most well, fascinating pieces. I wonder if that's because he heard all these years, though, Kevin Smith talking shit about him. Like, I feel like had Kevin Smith not been so public about that, I feel like John Pierce probably would have had nicer stuff to say. You know, I think you're probably right. If Smith either hadn't talked about it or if he had said, oh, Peters had all these great ideas. <laughs> you know, and like, yeah. That was the version of the story that got back to Peters. But on, yeah. that, on that note, it's you have to wonder, had Kevin Smith not talked about it at that Q&A and in subsequent stories. I don't know that we would have ultimately even gotten this documentary yeah. and we wouldn't true. be doing That's this episode. That's very true, yeah. That's very true. That's very true, yeah. So that big mouth of his really <laughs> really uh, yeah. uh, served us well here. But what else did I want to say about the, the Smith script? I mean, we talked about the Batman cameo, which was cool and how it you know definitely felt like a 90s comic 
brought to life. Oh, this is this is present in all versions of the story, but starting in the Smith script, where yes, Doomsday kills Superman, but Doomsday is sent by Brainiac, Brainiac. and Luther working together. In both versions, he's in the custody of Brainiac. He's part of. Mm-hmm. I think is is it the one version of the Menagerie? Yeah. Of aliens, yeah. Of like Brainiac has like a like a zoo of like creatures from all these different worlds he's collecting, and Brainiac is one of them, right? Or, so, or, or Doomsday, 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 Doomsday. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So this this stood out to me, especially given the the recent my recent reread of the Death of Superman and the, the conversation that I had about that. But this bit is definitely in contrast to the comic book story where Doomsday just arrives out of nowhere, death personified, mm-hmm. just this force of nature. He's not. He's not part of a plot by any of Superman's villains, right? And it gives it a different air because it's not like, oh, one of his rogues gallery gets 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 one over on him yeah. and kills him. It's just this force of nature. This puts a different spin on it. What what are your thoughts on it? Like, do you think that in the context of this movie, it works for oh, definitely for Brainiac yeah, yeah. and Luther to be behind? Yeah, Doomsday? yeah, definitely. You you can't you can't translate like long form storytelling that is like ongoing comic books you can't translate that into an hour and a half two hour movie you just can't like one-to-one and like tying do i thought it was really elegantly done actually like putting doomsday because it makes sense with brainiac's whole like thing about collecting crap from across the world right and it makes sense that's part of his kryptonian heritage so like i I don't know i thought i thought it would work very well i actually think it kind of works a little better than the you know what i mean like in, in the sense that there's like a purpose to it and that's not just some random thing that happens you know Gotcha. So I think I still prefer the approach that the comics creators took for the comic story, but I agree. I think this yeah, works. Oh yeah, for sure. I think this does serve the story, the movie story better, especially when you're considering the fact that for better or worse, you're telling the death and return in a movie that, you know, listening to these audio dramas, they're under two hours. And in fact, the Gilroy yeah. one is under an hour and a half. Yeah. Well, I mean, they, they would have been longer because, like, uh, both scripts had, like, they fight. You know what right. I mean? Like, like, they're, 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 they, like the action scenes in the script are, like, half a second long, which in the movie would have they would have gone between anywhere from, like, two minutes to, like, ten minutes, you know? So, like, they probably would have clocked in around two hours, I would say. Like, with, with like, all the action scenes put in. Yeah, no, good good call on that. But but in any event, even, even within that, uh, telling the entire death and return in, in one movie, I do think having Brainiac and Luther as the antagonists, as the through line across the movie, mm-hmm. I think that works well. So I was on board with totally. that. And the Smith script even goes a step further because it's not just that they send Doomsday. They, Brainiac also blocks out the sun. So Superman's yeah. fighting as his powers are rapidly diminishing. So that added a whole other component to it, which I thought was interesting. Yeah, that was cool. Yeah. it's cool, yeah. I actually had one more quick thing just to say about the Kevin Smith role in all of this. One of the things that he talked about in the Q and a was how after the initial meeting, uh, Peter said that he knew Peters and Smith would work well together. And he knew this because they were both from the streets. Yeah. And yeah. He says that in the documentary too. That's the thing that was so fascinating because Smith talks about it. And it's like, okay, but then Peters himself talks about it. And he, he even puts a number on it. At one point he boasts about having been in 500 fights yeah, 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 yeah. At, th- at that point, like, Laura and I looked at each other, we're like, whoa, this guy. 
Yeah, it's one of those things that I don't I don't know enough of his personal history. So maybe he does come from a very rough background. I don't know. But it was just odd that he talked about it as much as he did. And there was another reference. He, he brings it up at another point in the documentary, too, about being a street fighter. Yeah, yeah. And then I think at one point he says, like, that's why I wanted to make this movie for the streets. Like he like he says something to that effect. And I like very similar to that, where it's just like, well, well, one of the things he was talking about when going into the costume aspect of it was that he, they were talking about the Cape and how they were going to like reinterpret the Cape. And John Peters has this line where he's like, yeah, we want to, to make the Cape something different, you know, like maybe Superman could have it on his back. And then he, he throws it and can like, it can like shoot out and cut a guy's head off and then can like retract back onto his back. And like, I was like, what? Like that, that was wild. You know, that was wild. Again, and I know I keep saying this, but there's the behind the scenes of it is is really enlightening because you I guess you get a sense sometimes of how or this gives you a sense of how sometimes weird stuff ends up in a movie. If you have a powerful figure yeah. who's the producer who but, is able to sort of get this stuff through. I mean, not not for nothing, but like as a kid, if I saw Superman use his cape as a weapon, that's kind of cool. Like I like I, I think there's something to be said about not being so reverential to the source material and like taking ideas that are so from out of left field and from people who like don't revere the stuff as much because you do get some like cool ideas or sometimes, sometimes they can be weird, but sometimes they can make something cool. You know what I mean? And make like new aspect to the, the character that, you know, would make a great toy for a kid to have, you know? So who knows? Right. Yeah, no, fair enough. All right. So we're now at the point in the story where, the studio brings on Tim Burton to direct this film. And as we said, Burton quickly jettisons the Kevin Smith script, brings on Wesley Strick to write a draft. Eventually we'll get to the Dan Gilroy piece of it. And along the way, Nicolas Cage will, will join and, and will be attached to star as Clark and Superman. So I guess the first question, like I asked you about Kevin Smith, are you a big Tim Burton fan? And and Nicolas Cage, we could talk about them together, I guess, because I'm curious. Yeah, I'm a big Nick Cage fan. Big Nick Cage fan. I love Nick Cage. Uh, I I mean, I like his like when he's like really serious acting, but I also like his over the top more recent stuff too. You know, I I think he's uh, he's he's a he he's definitely has like an intensity and he's like a powerhouse. I mean, he's a movie star for a reason. Like I I I do like Nick Cage a lot. Um, Tim Burton, yeah, I do. I mean, I love Sleepy Hollow. It's one of my favorite movies for Halloween movies. I love obviously Batman, Batman and Returns. Um trying to think what well, i mean uh beetlejuice love beetlejuice uh nightmare before christmas i know he didn't direct that he just produced it but like it's his influence is all over that movie like i do like his his like quirky kind of like aesthetic because i feel like it's very unique to him i mean i know in more recent years he's had some movies that people have not jived with as much but like i saw dark shadows that movie he did with johnny depp that was it was like it was kind of cool you know it was like quirky and different like i think he's got like a cool unique kind of view and I think that that's something that would have suited a Superman reboot very interestingly. That So that was actually be my next question. So, you know, the, the extent to which his style would have lent itself to a Superman project. I mean, I guess, do you? Well, well, yeah. Well, how do you feel about Tim oh. Burton and Nick Cage? It's funny. As far as Nick Cage and I guess I'm in the minority because I know a lot of people are really into Nick Cage. I'm not, I'm not opposed to Nick Cage. I don't, this is weird to say, but I don't think I've seen like a ton of Nick Cage movies. 
I'm sure there were more that I saw as a kid that maybe I'm not remembering. I definitely remember Face Off, but yeah, Face Off. I've not. I don't really have much of an opinion to be honest. I've just not seen a ton. Did you ever see like Valley Girl? Mm, I don't know. Oh, dude, yeah. Nick Cage is like a punk rocker in that movie. It's great. Like he's got. I feel like he's got like a range that people don't give him. I feel like a lot of people remember like this the Sorcerer's Apprentice and crap like that that he did in the late 2000s but like i think he's had i think he's got some uh some gems you know yeah i mean look from what i have seen and remember i, I definitely can appreciate his his craft as, as an actor but yeah i don't i guess i don't have such a strong opinion with with respect to burton i mean i saw you know i saw beetlejuice as a kid and of course i saw his batman movies i saw big fish which i really liked mm-hmm. uh, this is now yeah. going back a, a while but i really liked that i saw his sweeney todd which i liked I never not, saw that one. Yeah, yeah. I've, I've not. To be honest, I, I mean, I'm sure I saw Beetlejuice as when I was little. Oh, and I definitely saw Edward Scissorhands when I was a kid. But oh yeah, I, me too. Yeah. yeah. I guess the point is, I can't say I've immersed myself in the work of Tim Burton the way I have, like Quentin Tarantino or Martin Scorsese, or Zack like, Snyder, or Zack Snyder, or Zach or Kevin Snyder. Smith. Yeah. You know, like I've had these moments across well, in my teen and twenties and thirties where I've you know you know kind of done deep dives, and I've never really done that with Burton. Did you ever see Sleepy Hollow? I don't know. I don't think I did. Oh, it's a good one, man. It's like his his take on uh, the Headless Horseman, and it's it's unique. It's like it, it's it's a good. It's like a fairy tale. It's like very cool. Nice, nice. Yeah. I guess what I, what I would say though is, is his style necessarily one that I would naturally gravitate toward? No, probably not. But I appreciate that he has a very distinctive vision. And I could see mm-hmm. why it would appeal to someone. And I look at his stuff and it's like, I, I, I can say, well, all right, this might not necessarily be for me, but I think it's good that this is out there sort of yeah. thing. Like that's yeah, kind of where, yeah. where I land on him. But what I was going to ask is, especially, you know, hearing him talk about it and seeing the concept art. And I really want to talk about the concept art and get your take on all of this. I mean, did it seem to you like this would have been Superman filtered through this weird, dark, tim burton vision or do you think it would have gelled in in a, in a cool way so, so that was the thing that i thought was really interesting was that it felt like tim burton was stretching like it didn't feel like he was cramming superman into like you know like a like a pinstriped like costume and like there was none of the like it, it felt like he was taking the superman like aesthetic and mixing it with his aesthetic but it wasn't it wasn't like his aesthetic was overpowering it it felt like a very it, it almost felt more in line with like alien, like that aesthetic of like aliens, you know, those, those movies, like, it, cause it, it, like, again, the very biomechanical kind of like feel to everything, which is not something that I associate with Tim Burton, like tech, you know what I mean? It's not something that you usually associate with, with Tim Burton, but this movie was like very, very much had like a very tech, like aesthetic running through all the concept art, but it was like Tim Burton tech, if that makes sense, you know? Yes, it totally does. And, and I, I, align with your your take on that as well that was one of the things that was surprising to me and like i was saying before i think people had the sense that this was going to be such a wacky weird departure from superman and i didn't get that sense and to your point and i think they mentioned this in the documentary that for burton he was known for his darker work and and you know movies set at night and everything and he wanted to do something different that was set in the daylight so yeah when they said that that was very interesting because i feel like that's that's what most people think is like oh it would have been like gloomy superman like this didn't feel like that at all it felt very much like like tim burton through the lens of like daylight and like 
technology. Like, you know what I mean? Like, yeah, for sure. So as far as the Burton piece of it, I, I mean, I think that it, it could have worked. It would have been interesting. It really would have been interesting to see I, that. that I, it's a shame that we didn't get we didn't get this movie. Now, we did get a lot of concept art. So, I mean, what was your take on the stuff that we saw in, in the documentary? Yeah, there was so much. So much. Yeah, there's so much concept artists, too. Like, Liam Sharp was one of them, which shocked me. I, I didn't realize that. Um, he was one of the ones, he specifically was designing the 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 mech, the bioorganic mech suit that Superman would wear that heals him, which, that looked cool. There was, like, like this, it had, like, an, like, it looked almost like, it was like covered with like glyphs, kind of like Aztec-esque looking glyphs, but with Kryptonian, but like definitely like based off Aztec sort of patterning. And then it had like a wingspan, so it had like angel wings kind of with like a halo around it. Like it, it was very different looking. And I was like, when I was looking at it, I was like, this totally would have been an action figure that I would have bought when I was a kid. Like flat out, this looks awesome. <laughs> like, yeah. Um, but yeah, the, the costume, I loved the, the ideas of the costume being black and silver with the red cape. Like, I thought that looked so cool. It was a like melding of the black suit and the classic suit. Yeah. I, 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 what about you? What, what, were there any pieces that stood out to you of, like, really cool? Yeah. The biggest, the biggest thing that's, I guess the two things. One was Brainiac, the idea of the head in the fishbowl with mm-hmm. the, the, the eight legs. So we still get that spider in there, right? So yeah, there was that. that was cool. But also, one of the pieces of art, one of the designs for Doomsday with all of the faces. That was cool. That was very cool. And that's one of those things that was very different, but it was, you know, this idea of faces and it could, it could form faces of of people Clark knew as he's, as he's Mm -hmm. fighting it. That was a very different take. And I was very intrigued by that for sure. That one stood out to me. That felt so funny to me because I drew a creature like that in bloodlines and I wasn't sure if JT knew about this and like wrote that in there or if it was just like a happy accent kind of thing that was like similar idea but like it wasn't one-to-one exactly but when i saw it i was like oh that looks like a thing i drew in bloodlines like so but yeah but that was a very cool take on doomsday was that they weren't holding to the rock monster it was like they were they were flexing with different ideas and how he would be you know that was cool yeah i like that there was a really beautiful piece of the tomb of Superman's tomb. And what was interesting was obviously in the Smith script, we spend time in the fortress. That's where Superman is, is brought and is resurrected and Brainiac kills the polar bear. Just one polar bear. The other one gets away. But by the Gilroy script that we listened to, and I think this was a budgetary issue that they talked about in the documentary that they were scaling things back. And so like all the resurrection stuff happens in this tomb. Uh, But I thought that was, I thought that was, that was a cool piece. I mean, what did you think about the, the aesthetic of Krypton that they, that they showed us. So cool. I thought it was so cool. Cause we were taught, like we said, the biomechanical, like that, like pervaded through Krypton. Like it had all this like, like round looking tech, like discs and orbs and like wires everywhere. And like, it just had this very like mechanical look throughout the whole Krypton plant. Like it didn't look like the Donner movies. It didn't look like Man of Steel either. Man of Steel had a very like, um, like uh like rock like very like like natural organic kind of look to krypton where this felt very like like everything was like wired together you know with like cables and wires and like and it had a very very different cool look and the kryptonian the actual kryptonians what you see them wearing with the with like the the metal like things going down their fingers and like yeah in like the bubbles around their heads and stuff like very different such a different take on what anything we have seen for krypton kryptonians yeah, no, I liked it too. Look, going back to what we were saying before, it it was it was great what what Donner came up with in Superman the movie, but 
Krypton doesn't always have to be <laughs> depicted that way. The fortress doesn't always have to be depicted the way it is there. I do like that Tim Burton had a quote in the documentary. It was like he thought Marlon Brando looked like he was made out of like a Jiffy Pop bag. <laughs> Oh, and yeah. that like like the tinfoil Jiffy and he's like he wanted to get away from like the tinfoil look and I'm like oh I never thought about that but that it is kind of what he's wearing is tinfoil yeah I have to say listening to the to the Gilroy script and I don't know how familiar you are with Dan Gilroy I mean I can't say I'm an expert by any stretch but did he did the movie Nightcrawler with Jake Gyllenhaal did you see that never read it or sorry never saw it no. yeah that was really good uh, I would definitely recommend that uh, you know comic book fans of course had a field day online when that movie was announced it's not X-Men related <laughs> but, uh, it's very, uh, but that was really good so that's mostly where I, I know him from but his script and uh, we hear it in the audio drama begins on Krypton as it's being destroyed and Brainiac is trying to kill Jor-El and, and, and does he kills Jor-El and Lara mm-hmm. if I remember yeah, correctly does, yeah uh, but he is does, unable yeah. to prevent the the ship from escaping. But I thought the the over the top Christopher Walken impression aside, <laughs> I thought it was a very gripping way to to begin. I thought it was it was a punchier, more energetic opening than than the script, the Smith script, where Brainiac is just kind of floating through space. Yeah, totally. Oh, the yeah. <laughs> so minor and stupid, but it made me laugh in the in the Smith script audio drama he has this robotic sidekick Elrond. Yes. Yeah. And the narrator seems to be, seems to refer to the psychic as Elrond at like Cal uh-huh. Elrond sort of thing. But the yeah. actor doing the Brainiac voice addresses him as if it's like uh, Elroy, the, the son of the, uh, you know, on the Jetsons, right? So it's like Elrond. Yeah, El- yeah. It just made me laugh. Uh, but this weird yeah. robotic sidekick, uh, I don't think that yeah. was a great loss to, to move away from that in the, in the subsequent. Yeah. Script. That felt like forced humor a little bit in with the sidekick, yeah. yeah. I mean, I, I liked in the Gilroy script how Brainiac is tied to the Krypton's, like, demise. You know, it felt very much like the animated series. Yes. You know, the idea that, that Brainiac is tied to that. Um, yeah, no, it was cool. Yeah, I felt like the Brainiac in the Gilroy script and the Burton version had a little bit more teeth to him as opposed to in the Smith script where he was trying to find a power source, right? That was his whole yeah. his whole motive in that was to find the Eradicator, which would be this mm-hmm. permanent, everlasting power source. And I feel like yeah. we got a little, there was a little bit more depth to it in, in the Burton version. So yeah, I was, I yeah. was on board with that. I mean, what a little more you, sinister. Yeah, assuming we got not the version of Christopher Walken we heard in the audio drama, but more of like a sinister. Do you think he would be a good, I mean, primarily the voice of Brad. I do. Mac, yeah. Yeah, no, I do. I do. Yeah. I, I think he would be good. I, I mean, yeah, he's a good actor, man. Like he's, you know, and he's done great shit. Like, and you know, and he can go to that like psycho place, I think yes. pretty easily. And I, I think he, I think that's the kind of brain act we would have gotten. They were also considering Kevin Spacey, or they were interested in Kevin Spacey for Lex. Interestingly, of course, he would go on to play him in Superman Returns. One of the other major deviations between the two versions of the project is that in the Smith script, Brainiac and Luther work together. In mm-hmm. in the Burton version, they they literally merge together to yeah. form the Lexiac entity. Silly and stupid, or do you think that would have been kind of cool? Uh, silly and stupid on the surface, but I think would have worked fine for like this era of superhero movies, you know, like I think it would have, again, it would have made a cool action figure for like, where you press the button, the head, the head flips around or something like, I mean, like these movies were definitely written. I mean, this era of superhero movies were definitely aimed with the idea that like, 
these are for kids and parents to take their kids to, you know what I mean? It wasn't aimed to be like, this is like a deep deconstruction of like the psychology of Brainiac, like, like how we're at now with these movies. So you have to always look at through that lens of like, would I have liked this when I was like 10? Like, I think, yeah, that would have been cool. Like, I don't know. That's a, no, you're, you, that point is very well taken. It was a different time in, in a lot yeah. of ways. And you and I did an epic episode on the steel movie with Shaq, mm-hmm. which came out in 97. And it's like, you know, yeah. <laughs> that's the era that we're dealing with. So, you know, yeah. but even, even, and I don't even know if I would say grading it on a curve. It's not necessarily worse or lesser, but, but considering yeah. it in that context. Yeah. I definitely think that it, it would have been something cool. So yeah, we would have had Lexiac, uh, yeah. which I guess I'm still <laughs> somewhat on the fence about, but uh, you know, yeah, I mean, like definitely kind of goofy for sure. But like thinking about it through like Tim Burton's like visual lens, like I think there would have been some cool visuals to like the faces changing because like it does this thing where like Brainiac kind of like Brainiac doesn't have a body; he's like that head kind of floating, and the whole reason he does that is so that he can have like a body to inhabit while he walks around earth and so like and there's moments in the script where like like his face kind of like morphs out into like like the brainiac face shifts between like lex and like brainiac so i think there would have been some cool creepy visuals that tim burton would have used one thing and i have to give this project credit regardless of which script we're talking about we get brainiac we get lex we get doomsday again the smith script threw in deadshot you know, one of the, it didn't feel like overstuffed either. It didn't feel like those Batman movies where like there's too many villains going around. Like like in the Gilroy script that we read, they felt like like you understood the motivations and like it just they didn't feel just shoehorned in. You know, like it felt like there was reasons for them. Kind of on that note, going back to what I was asking you before about the decision to have Doomsday uh, under the control of of Brainiac. I do think structurally that solves a problem with trying to do the death and return of Superman in one movie. And I have talked about this before, but you know, you look at the, the Superman doomsday animated movie years and years mm-hmm. ago. It is that long. It sounds like forever ago, but it was quite a while ago, but their first entry in the, the these DC direct to, to, to DVD animated movies, um, you know, and they only had 75 minutes, but to try to do all of it and to, especially to have doomsday be this force that comes out of nowhere, it just didn't work. And so I do think that here having Brainiac control, it just ties everything together and definitely gives you mm-hmm. a more cohesive story. Um, yeah. I, well, like, it, yeah. I mean, I also feel like it gives Superman a reason to come back. Right. Like, because like if he kills doomsday, like, and that's the only villain, like what's like, what's he coming back to triumph against? You know what I mean? Like, so I feel like there's an element of that, you know, that like, with doomsday because doomsday in the comics he's not like he's not a character that has like any sort of real motivation he's just kind of he's literally just a monster so like by it's it's like not like bane right where like in batman and robin where they made bane like a thug like in the comics bane is like this brilliant tactician on top of being this really like tough dude so like where brainiacs or doomsday's always been just like a brainless monster so like using him as like a thought like a pawn kind of like works more organically i think yes no, I do agree with that. And and yet, like, that's the thing in in the comic or even in that animated movie, he, you know, I guess a, a, re, a reason to come back is a new threat, right? In the comics, we mm-hmm. have the cyborg Superman and Mongol and Coast yeah. City's been destroyed. But I do think, especially in the context of telling this in a single movie, it is more resonant when mm-hmm. it's 
I mean, essentially to get revenge, not, but beyond that, to stop these two who now yeah. have the potential to go unchecked. So it, it really, I, I do think it works as, as much as, like, that's the thing, though. As much as I love the death and return of Superman in the comics, I'm not so beholden to that. I think there are mm-hmm. ways you can do it. And look, we saw it in the Snyderverse. That was not a traditional, you know, that was not a direct no, no. adaptation of the death and return of Superman. It utilized elements no. of it, but it was done in a way to serve the story that, the specific story that yeah. Snyder was telling. And it, I thought it worked great. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. So we talked about, again, this, this Lexiac entity I mentioned before Chris Rock uh, being cast as Jimmy Olsen. Now I know like you have, you have a pretty specific take on Jimmy Olsen, generally speaking, right. In terms of what you look for in a, in a Jimmy character. Well, I, I just want him to be like relevant, you know, and I, I'm listening to the the uh, the audio drama, like imagining Chris Rock doing it. Like, I, I think he would have been great as Jimmy Olsen, you know, he would have been he would have added the, the, the comedy. Right. Which would have been there, but it wouldn't have been that like, ah, shucks, like eye rolling comedy. It would have been like, like fast talking 90s comedy. You know, I, I don't know. I think he would have been great. Yeah. So, you know, Kevin Smith talks about how when they were working on Dogma. Chris Rock came to the set one day and he's like, I'm Jimmy Olsen. And back when Smith was writing the script, he had envisioned his cast for the movie. And of course his, his pick for Superman would have been Ben Affleck. <laughs> uh, which, did he say that in the, in the documentary? Did he say that? That I don't believe that was in the documentary, but I read that elsewhere okay. in, in my research for this, but at that, you know, I mean, it certainly tracks in terms of where yeah. those guys were at that point in time. And I love seeing the memes. This is true with Affleck. Obviously, he played Batman in the Snyderverse, but he did play a version of Superman Superman in Hollywoodland. So not too many who can say that. But I guess that brings us to to the Nick Cage of it all and his take on Clark and Superman. And it's it's so unfortunate. You know, know, Schnepp was able to talk to Peters and Kevin Smith and Tim Burton. That felt Mm -hmm. like a little bit of of a get. That was like a whale, yeah. Yeah, for sure. And... But unfortunately, we don't get a Nicolas Cage interview. There's an interview that they they pull clips from uh, when he was on a talk show discussing this movie that didn't happen. But then we do also get the costume test, which was really like the the holy grail yeah. here. So that that definitely yeah. made up for a lot. But yeah, I mean, what what's your take on what we saw of what his Superman and Clark would have been like? Oh, dude, I loved it. I love I loved I love that he had long hair. Like I right off the bat, that was a cool. Like it wasn't gonna be like trying to look like Christopher Reeve. It was like no, this is gonna be like '90s Superman. Like I thought that looked great. I thought him in the suits looked great too. Like all the suits they showed him testing. Like even that the the first one that has that weird like neck coloring thing. The suit itself, like it was still flexible and like it had like the muscles were kind of like sculpted in, sort of like the Batman suit, but not as they were more like stylized. Like, everything was like sharp and angular looking. And, and Nick Cage is in like, at the time was in like really good shape. Like, so like he didn't need the extra, like, it, it wasn't like they were like, trying to fake like muscles on him, you know, like it was like, it looked like it was moving well on him. And then the later costume test where it's like the huge, the cape that like arcs up really big. Like, I just thought he looked great in the suit. Like wh- when you, when you tell someone Nick Cage is Superman, they sometimes like scoff, but then like you forget what Nick Cage looked like in 1997. It's like, no, he looked like a good Superman, you know? I don't know. I was down for it. See, this is, I think this is where we, we differ a little bit. I, I'm not, I'm not the polar opposite of what you just described. I, I wasn't so turned off by, by seeing him in the costume. I just don't know that I'm totally 
Sold. What did Laura think? Because I showed Steph the photos, and she she, did, she wasn't she wasn't so taken with it. But what did Laura think? Laura was down. Yeah. She, she she especially the um, the ones were like what what costume was it? It's like the photos were like he's got long hair, but it's like the suits like darker blue, and he's got the cape on. You know you know what I'm talking about? Yeah. yeah, yeah. And and Laura was, Laura was like he looks really good here. Like and like I don't know, man. I'm down. Like it's again separating out like does Superman have to look like Christopher Reeve, right? If you, if you can accept he doesn't have to look like Christopher Reeve, then like, I think this is a legitimate take for him to look, you know? Yeah, that's fair. And also when you, when you look at between the script and what, what Burton himself said, the, the themes that they were, that they wanted to play with of really this, of him being an outsider and this sense of alienation along those lines, that's one of the, one of the things that I thought was definitely interesting in the Burton version, and certainly different than the script, and the, I keep saying that, the Smith script, <laughs> was that in the Burton version of the movie, he doesn't know he's an alien. Yeah, yeah, that was interesting. Like, he finds out he's an alien in this movie. Like, he just thinks he has powers. Like, he was, like, just born with powers, you know? Um, which, that was definitely an interesting take, and it definitely lent to like the outsiderness to Superman and to Clark Kent, you know, and which interestingly enough, I've listened to a lot of podcasts. People talk about the Batman movies, breaking them down. And a big consensus is that Tim Burton, those movies aren't really about Batman. They're about the first one's really more about the Joker. And the second one's more about the penguin and Catwoman. And like the big consensus is that because Tim Burton is like, he, he identifies more with the villains kind of thing. In this movie, this is a Superman movie. Like, it is not about Brainiac. It is literally about Superman being the outsider. And, like, you could tell that that was the character Tim Burton was identifying with in this script. Like, he wasn't identifying with Brainiac. He was definitely identifying with Clark and Superman. So I think that would have been a very... I think this would have done really interesting stuff for Tim Burton's career. Like, I don't know. I just think... I think people would have a different perception of him. Because, like, this this was a very cool take, I thought. Yeah. And like I said, going back to this idea of this vacuum in the Superman film canon, this doesn't happen in 1998. They were uh, allegedly very close to filming and Warner Brothers Mm -hmm. was in a precarious state. The Batman franchise was in disarray. They had other movies that weren't working. This was already racking up a large budget. They pulled the plug. Which I always... I always assumed that the reason this movie didn't happen was because there were creative differences and Tim Burton wasn't into it and walked away. That was like my assumption was like, he's like, uh, Superman's not my thing. I'm not really into it. Like I'm walking away. Like that's kind of what my assumption was. But after watching this documentary, he really wanted to make this movie. And it seems like it's something that like haunts him that it didn't get to happen. And like, it was literally like ripped from him. It wasn't it, like, it seemed like he was like invested in making this. And that was another reason that I really kind of wanted to see this because from the, like, the passion and like the thought he put into it and like how much you could tell he identified with this version of Clark that he was making. I think it would have been something really special. I agree as much as Peters was the one who initially got the ball rolling in all of this and, and was as he himself says, acting as the de facto director initially, you know, commissioning the the, the art and the script and all that stuff. But yeah, I mean, you, you do you do get the sense that you just described, that this was something that Burton cared about. It wasn't just that the studio brought him in for a meeting and he was like, oh, Superman, we'll see. You know, he was he was clearly invested in this. You look, you know, that's the thing. And we talked about this when we did our Steel discussion. As far as the, um, not even the fandom of the people involved, but the, the intention 
right? And and mm-hmm. sort of the place that they're coming from. And is that ultimately the most important thing? Not necessarily, but was I at least slightly more forgiving of the Steel movie because I know that Shaq loves the character and loves Superman? It's like, yeah. And yeah, you, and you yeah. look at the at the costume test that with, with when Burton and Cage were there and talking about the character and especially the bit when Cage was in his Clark Kent garb. Yes. And it's like you, these guys clearly were putting thought and care into this. That was certainly the sense that I got. I, I loved his Clark Kent, like how his version of Clark Kent wore like a blazer with a Mickey Mouse T-shirt. Right. And he was like just kind of like he wasn't like a bumbling his take wasn't that Clark was a bumbling oaf or a mask. It was like, what we always talk about that Clark is who he is. Like that seemed what they were going for. was that like Clark is who he is. And Superman is this persona he puts on when he fights crime. But like his version of Clark was just this kind of like awkward geek, you know, not like, not like a bumbling fool, but like just kind of like an awkward kind of sheepish, like, like nerd, you know? And like the, I just felt like that the take was so relatable, you know, like it was such a relatable take on Clark Kent. And, and like, and like when when you see when Nick Cage is dressed up like Clark Kent, and he's looking in the mirror. He's like, "Yeah, no one would ever think this guy's Clark Kent, you know? <laughs> or this no one would ever think this guy's Superman." You know, I'm like, "It's like it works, like you know? yeah, yeah." You know, and and they as far as this the whole alienation aspect of this and him being this outsider, Cage Cage definitely has that more of that vibe. So I so yeah. that's that's the thing too where. Like I know you're you're hotter on the idea of, of Nick Cage as Superman, but even whether for me or someone else who's who's not, I think we do also have to consider it in the context of the specific story that's being told. And I I don't know. I feel like he it, he probably would have fit within this vision of the world. I mean, I guess the scene that really yeah. sticks out is when he's out to dinner with Lois, and he's telling her that he's Superman, and his you know his leg is shaking <laughs> so much that I guess like stuff around him is starting to shake, right? And he yeah. excuses himself, and I can't remember if this is in the the audio drama, but they definitely talked about it in the documentary that at that moment he like flies around the building like over and over to relieve that tension. Yeah, yeah, no, yeah, it was, it was, yeah, interesting. Yeah, I guess what's your take on that? Is that is that too neurotic? of a Superman or, and even if we think it's not, do you think that would have been as far as the audience expectations? Like, is that, is that a little bit too, too much or do you think that would have worked? No, I think, I think in the final movie, it would have been almost like humorous how they would have played it, that, that aspect of it, you know, like, because like, I feel like everyone's kind of been in that situation, right. Where like, you just like, you're like really like anxious about something and like you don't you like you don't know what you're like you just feel like you're just gonna burst kind of thing and like i think that was like a a very humanizing moment for him like do i want every superman take to be that no but like for for in the world that this existed in like i think it would have played fine honestly like did you have a problem with that or no not necessarily i was okay with that and i and i think that is a moment where like you said, I think everyone has had that moment where, you know, whether it's a romantic situation or otherwise, where you have to ask something or tell something and you're nervous. And so yeah. th- that really came through in this. It was funny listening to the, I, I should have checked. I don't know offhand if it was the same actor who did both, who did Clark in both audio dramas, but either way, they, whether it was one person or two, they, they both, they definitely went for the, the Nick Cage impression. It sounded more Luke Wilson-y to me. That's what I kept yeah. hearing when I was listening to it, but it does give you a, it definitely gives you a feel like I appreciate that the, the creators yeah. here 
of the audio dramas committed to that because it definitely gives you a feel for what it would have what it would been like yeah no for sure for sure i mean i i think that the again like his take on clark and i also think that he would have brought an intensity to superman that like we we talk about how we like henry cavill because he just comes across as badass sometimes i think nick cage would have had that quality in some of those fight scenes like that just like the the like the tough badass kind of like almost scary superman in some points when like when like an alien's fighting superman and you see him just cut loose and like you're like oh shit superman can kick ass like i think nick cage definitely would have brought that you know yeah i i thought it was funny when they were talking about the underwear and like the red underwear and the suit and it's like yeah it i i know i've heard guests on your podcast say that they need the underwear for the color break and stuff that they got rid of it on Batman. I don't think Superman needs the underwear. I mean, and I'm saying this as like a visual artist. Like I, I, I truly don't think it's that important to like his overall look. Um, like when you're looking at Nick Cage in the suit without the underwear, are you like seeing it and being like, oh, I don't know who this is. Like, no, it's Superman. Like, you know, it's like, <laughs> <laughs> no, look, I've long gone on record as this. I don't, yeah. I really don't feel strongly about them. And it's, yeah, I don't, it's really funny because I, if they didn't talk about it and, you know, they, they talked about it in the documentary and that costume test, but if they hadn't and you had asked me, Oh, did the costume have underwear? I probably would have said, I don't know. Like it's not, yeah. it's not like the first thing I check when I see a Superman costume, like, oh, yeah, underwear yeah. there. It's like, nah, yeah. nah, you know, <laughs> yeah. it's like, like it, it, this is the, in comic books in the drawn form. Like, I think they work fine. Just like the X-Men costumes, like Wolverine with the blue underwear and the yellow costume. Like it works fine. Like it, 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 it nothing wrong with it. It looks, looks, iconic and all that but like when you translate it to real life i just think there's something that like like especially if you're going for like a more textured like look like you know with like like armor or pat or whatever they're doing to make these costumes look more and more advanced today i just think it like it just kind of looks weird you know so i don't know that's my take on it no i hear you i again not to knock the the creators of the audio drama i found though in both versions the the each lois was kind of the weak link in terms of the vocal performance. I felt like there, there were moments that the emotional punch was kind of lost because of the, the performance. Uh, but speaking of Lois, we mentioned before, uh, potentially Sandra Bullock in the movie. They also talk about, I guess they were considering Julianne Moore and Courtney Cox. There seemed to be a little, well, there definitely was tension between Peters and Tim Burton generally. And that came yes. across in the documentary, especially there, because I, if I remember correctly, Peters mentions those three names, and then they cut to Burton, and he was like, I must not have been there that day. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, that being said, I think that Sandra Bullock would have been a great Lois. Like, I think for I that think time, so. yeah. she, she would have been my favorite. My, my pick would have been her. Do you think she would have, out of those three, if the, since those were the yeah. names that they threw out there, although I'm sure they were considering a ton of big name actresses at the time, but do you think yeah. out of those three, she would have been the best fit with the Nick Cage, Clark, and Superman? I do. Yeah, I do. I would tend to I agree do, with yeah. that as well. Yeah. 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 yeah, she would have been a great Lois. I would have loved. I would have loved yeah. to have seen her too. Courtney Cox would have been interesting. You know, I mean, I obviously yeah. I loved watching Friends, so it's you definitely have a certain image of her in your head. But I yeah. don't know. That would have been interesting. It, but I think Sandra Bullock it, probably it, would have been best. Yeah, I think so. I think Courtney Cox probably would have been very close to her portrayal on Friends. You know, probably would have been very similar. Um, yeah, no, I think Sandra Bullock would have been my choice for sure. The Julianne Moore one, I didn't really feel that strong about it 
You know, I did. Yeah. I just didn't really see it personally. But um, yeah, Sandra Bullock would have been great. So we talked about how in the Kevin Smith version, the Eradicator restores Clark, and again he initially comes back and he doesn't have his full power set, and the sun is still out. Uh, and so the Eradicator is able to take these different forms. The Eradicator was the ship that brought him to Earth, mm-hmm. right? And then he eventually becomes the suit around him and all of that. Whereas, like you said, in the Gilroy Burton version, it's K, this mm-hmm. you know embodiment of, of Krypton. And I don't know, what was your take on the end? So K and the Eradicator ultimately serve very similar functions, but in the end, K seems to represent the spirits of Jorel and Lara, and they sacrifice themselves to restore his powers. Like, was that your was that your take on that too, or what did you think of that? Yeah, I mean, I got I got that vibe from it. I mean, it, it seems you can't make a Superman movie without getting Jorel talking to him in some way. Um, but I thought it was interesting that it was both his parents. Like, I like that it was both his parents, not just Jorel, and that I like that it's sort of tied into the beginning a little bit. Like, like it, I didn't find it like offensively like bad. You know what I mean? Yes. And I think like, here's the thing with the Smith version. Yeah. As a fan of the death and rain, it was cool to have the eradicator. Mm-hmm. And look, Smith himself said in the interview that he just, th- he knew that if he knew he wasn't directing it. Right. And that any director who came on board would throw away whatever they didn't want anyway. So he just put in everything he wanted as a comic book fan. And it, and it yeah. reads like that. And that's fine. That's cool. Yeah. I think that in terms of the story that they were telling, the, the K, whatever you call it, but the K version of the, of the Burton story worked better. Like you said, it definitely gives you that circular ending where we begin with Jor-El and Lara. And then at the end, they sacrifice themselves again or their essence mm-hmm. or energy or whatever it is to, to restore his powers. Uh, so I think that, that works well in the in the Smith version. I felt like it, we spent an awful lot of time with Clark and the Eradicator having this like I don't know buddy cop like back and forth. I did it didn't that to, didn't totally work for me. I like the K version better. Yeah, I mean, I, I do too. I do too. Like for sure. And like I dude, I loved the concept art for the K, like the armor suit that he was wearing. Like so, like it was like this biomechanical. Like it looked almost like 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 bands almost around him. And like when he, he could fly because the back would like, like fan out like angel wings and like created like this, like halo, like effect around his head. Like it just looked really cool. Like it didn't look like Superman at all, but like it looked like just a cool like character, you know? And so I, I think people would have been down with it that, especially at the time. It's also, I mean, I do, it is a cool concept. This idea that, that Jor-El and Lara would send him to earth with something that, would be what he needed it to be at each stage in his life. So whether it was Mm -hmm. akin to a stuffed animal when he's a kid or this protector when he's an adult and in, and in need. Yeah. You know, do I need that in my Superman origin story? Not necessarily, but it is a cool, it's a cool concept. It's a cool idea. Yeah. Yeah. And I like that in the, I think it was Dan Gilroy script where like Kay is basically telling him like, we need to leave. Like we need to leave earth and find another planet because you're in danger here. And Superman like makes this choice of like, no, I have to stay. And like, I've been searching for like what gives my life purpose and like what gives my life purpose is, is humanity, you know? And I, I felt there was like a very, a very optimistic like look at the character of Superman in this movie that in the Dan Gilray script that again was not what you would assume thinking of Tim Burton, you know what I mean? Like, but it was, it was very much a, like 
positive, like, like Superman, he felt like a very good person in this script. You know what I mean? Yes. Yeah, for sure. And what I don't, well, I don't love that Superman is in a relationship with Lois, but she doesn't know he's Clark. I, I, I could do without that. But I think in the Gilroy script, it works better that Clark is feeling alienated. Clark is feeling like the outsider. And upon his return, his resurrection, it's this epiphany that, you know, he has this connection to humanity and, and represented by Lois. I feel you get more mileage out of that than in the Kevin Smith script, where again, he wants to take the next yeah. step with Lois. And so like when he comes back, he has, he says something similar where it's like, I, I've learned about how fragile humanity is having gone through this process. So there's some sort of emotional growth, I suppose, when he comes back, but I feel like it's far more meaningful and it connects better in the Gilroy script based on what had yeah. been set up previously. Yeah, well, I mean, the the thing about him and Lois being in a relationship, like Superman's in the relationship with Lois, but Clark isn't, I felt like there was, there's like a level of allegory you could relate to that, where it's like, he's, he's like, Superman is scared to show Lois who, like, his true, like, dorky, like, side because he's scared she's like not gonna like him. And like that's kind of a very relatable thing, right? Like yeah. like when you first start dating someone, it's like it's like, you know, oh don't I I don't collect comics, you know, like like shit like that. You know what I mean? Like it's like and like but like but like by the end of it he like he like opens up to her and is like, you know, like like this is me kind of thing, you know? And I felt there was a very like human element to that, you know? Right. Yeah, that's true. No, I, yeah, that's the thing. I, I could, I, def, I could get on board with that for sure. What else have we not talked about yet that, that you wanted to cover? Oh, so what I thought was a really cool idea was Tim Burton's idea for how he changes from Clark Kent to Superman. Did you, did you, how would you think about this? Where instead of using a phone booth or instead of like doing the shirt rip, he just takes off like from the ground and he takes off so like viscerally that his clothes like burn off and vaporize and Superman suits underneath. And I thought that was such a cool idea. I'm shocked. No one's done that like ever in the comics or in the movies or anything like that's such a cool, like badass idea. Like, yeah, logistically doesn't make sense. Cause it's always have to buy new clothes, <laughs> but, but as a visual for a movie, like that's awesome. Like, <laughs> yeah. I did think that was cool. And yes, if you, if you, if it's established that that's how he does it literally every time, it's like, all right, that could get a little silly and you do wonder about his clothing bill. But, but the idea is cool. And especially if it's truly an emergency, I like, that makes mm-hmm. total sense. I don't think he would worry about folding his clothes and putting them aside. It's like he would just no, burn them right yeah. off. Yeah. That was cool. I like that. Yeah. And I liked how Tim Burton's vision for him flying, which I think they incorporated into Man of Steel a little bit, was that it was a much more visceral thing. It wasn't like he just kind of like, floated it was like he like had to like launch himself and then when he landed it was like with like and like rubble like blowing up and stuff like again very way more actiony and like visceral than i would have thought a tim burton movie would be you know like usually he's more of like cerebral but this like this felt like it was very like a very physical movie if that makes sense yeah again we keep coming back to this where i think maybe people including myself at points would, would have been quick to write this off as Burton doing a very Burton version of Superman, but it's like, no, I think mm-hmm. he was, like you said, was stretching and was, and was trying to, again, still utilize his sensibilities. And you look at his, his initial sketches and they are, you know, very much in, in the vein Quirky, of what yeah. you would expect from him. But yeah, I mean, I think ultimately he was trying to make a Superman movie, you know? Yeah. And, yeah, for sure. And, and I mean, I, I do still think it would have been a very Burton movie, but like, but not in the way people 
like typically think if that makes sense like because it, it was definitely would not have been a traditional superman movie right like it would not have been like the christopher reeve even even the henry cavill version like like i think it would have been more of a departure from what you think of superman than that but he didn't kill anyone right he didn't kill right. anyone in the script he didn't he didn't like like i i don't i don't think the tone was going to be necessarily oppressive either so like i actually think that this movie would have been pretty well received yeah i you know it's it's hard to say but kind of on that note it's so shocking to me that we have not gotten a comic book or animated adaptation of this in all these yeah. years yeah well probably probably because Tim burton doesn't want to do it i mean that would be I, my assumption but know? i'm saying like for even yeah. for just for warner brothers to do it i mean i don't know that they necessarily would, would need any approval from him it's true yeah it's true uh, you know it's, yeah i mean yeah an animated like a really high quality animated movie on this would be awesome and you could get nick cage to voice him you that's know? The thing. so I, I i was reading that you know how they did those animated continuations of the adam west batman show over the past mm-hmm. few years one of the producers on those was talking about how he had tried to get uh, a version of Superman lives off the ground in animated form. And I don't know either there was an interest or like it just, it didn't materialize, but there was at least some, some attempt to do something. But uh, yeah, I mean, so I feel like at this point in time, I feel like a comic book is still definitely one way this could go. Uh, Mm -hmm. Animated definitely feels like this would be a natural outlet for this look maybe this podcast episode of ours will really really take off yeah. and someone will listen i'm like oh yeah <laughs> i doubt it but and then the other thing too is and we talked about this when we talked about the steel movie and our hopes that Shaq would show up in the flash movie which i think that's probably a long shot but I, yeah i don't know is it so far out of the realm of possibility that a nick cage superman might show up what if he's like kingdom come superman like you know how brandon ralph is kingdom come superman on flash on yeah. the tv show what if what if Nick Cage is the Kingdom Come Superman for the movie? I mean, that'd be cool. I mean, but like, but I don't think that would happen though because I feel like most people don't know about this. You know what I mean? Like, like, like your average like you know person going to the movie theater. Like, I don't think it's any idea that Nick Cage was ever cast as Superman. You know? Yeah, true. Yeah, well, I, yeah, I know that's a good question. How that would play and how the anticipation of how it would play would factor into whether or not they would even do it. Yeah, I don't know, but yeah. I would—I definitely would love to see an animated adaptation of this. If if you had to pick one of the scripts to see adapted, which one would you choose? Uh, definitely the Gilroy script, just because yeah. like I feel like it more like like we said we like I think it's a, a tighter, like cleaner, like like more like less loose ends in it. You know, it's like more like also more in line with the Burton vision. Right. You know, yeah. What about you? I I would I would prefer the Gilroy script as well, but I feel like, well, look, Warner Brothers could just they would hire a screenwriter and they would uh, maybe pull in elements from both, and yeah. that's probably the likeliest thing. But I feel like they would utilize at least some, if not most, of the Smith script because I feel like unless Burton were going to be involved in this in some way, which I I doubt, I feel like using more of script of the Smith script brings Kevin Smith into this and then he's promoting it and he's talking about it. I feel like that they would get a little more knowledge and value out of that. So I feel like they would build this more as like Kevin Smith's lost script, but uh, who's to say? I mean, that's true. That's true. I mean, like we said, like how the Kevin Smith script is very faithful to the comic books. 
I think that's the reason why I'd prefer the other one is because I feel like we have the death and return of Superman in the comics. We have the death and return of Superman animated movie like already. Right. And his was so close to that, that to me, it doesn't really feel like new ground where like the gallery script, like feels like a very different, unique thing, which is why I would lean more toward that. Right. You know, in terms of, we talked about this before, but as far as just the runtime and how, where everything falls, you know, in, in either version, Superman's not dead for very long. And that's, that's one of the things that makes it so tough, I think, to adapt the full storyline in a single movie, even regardless mm-hmm. of length. That's why when DC did the, the two movies, when they, when they made their second attempt and they did the death, yeah. the death as, as part one and the return as part two, I thought that worked well. If Superman and Lois ever wants to do it, I think they're very well positioned to tell the story over that episodic format and HBO oh, yeah. Max miniseries. Like, I feel like that's the, the, the best format for the death and return because it allows these moments to breathe. But if it has to be in a, in a two hour movie, did you feel like there was enough breathing room and time given to the funeral portion and him being gone? I, I do because he's not gone in the movie, but the public at large thinks he's gone for a lot of that time because he's in that, like, that like suit that covers his face, that like regeneration mech suit. So like they don't know that Superman, like he, the public doesn't see Superman come back until the end. I, I do think you're right that that story is particularly hard to adapt because why it works so well in the comics is because you've have all this time leading up to Superman dying. Like you've got potentially years of being invested in the character, right? So when he dies, it's very impactful, not only to the characters in this book, but to you as a reader, because you've been invested with this character for so long. And then when he's gone, you can fill in with those other characters for, you know, a long time, six months, a year, whatever it was. Um, Whereas when you're adapting it to screen, if it's a show, you only have as long as you've had a run up with the show. Right. And then when he's gone, you kind of have to have other characters fill in so that that's kind of tricky and with the movie, it's even harder because if you're going to do it in the first movie, like like to to do to do this story faithfully, hundred percent right, you need something like the Marvel Cinematic Universe, where he's around for potentially like involved in four, five, six movies before he dies, you know, and then is gone for two, three, four movies, and then comes back, you know. So that would be the only way to truly do it like a hundred percent accurate. So I think this this attempt to do it all in one movie did the, the best it possibly could, I think. Yes. Yeah. Well, and, 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 and kind of on that note, the fact that, yeah, we're not, this is not an, an extension of the Christopher Reeve franchise. I mean, we're introducing an entirely new version and killing him off. You don't have much time to mm-hmm. get invested. And I think for that limited amount of time, I do think they did a, a good job of giving you, especially in the Gilroy script where you're also dealing with him finding out that he's from, another planet right so that's uh-huh. you know sort of one of our jumping off points is that uh lex finds he has the satellite right and he finds that there's the spaceship landed in smallville and they unearth it and you know this is his as much as he knows he's different but this is his first inclination that he's an actual literal alien which mm-hmm. look i've covered the origin stories a lot i i do for my, I guess my personal preference, I do like the moment of of Pa showing him the rocket in the in the barn. Even if he I doesn't, do. oh yeah, I do too. You know, even yeah. if he doesn't have the full context and the full story, and he needs to go out in search of it, and he ultimately discovers the fortress and all that stuff. I I, I like that, but I 
it's yeah, I don't know that like that would take me a second to to get behind. But like I said, I think it lends itself to this this version of the story that we're telling. So I you know I have yeah. to appreciate that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I I think it adds to his feeling as like an outsider, which was like the big thing that they're hitting with this movie was like was Clark's perspective is that he feels like an outsider, you know. So like having that be something that he discovers in the course of the movie as an adult, I think while do I want that to be the, the canon for the character like forever? No, but like for this movie, like I think it, it worked. Yes. You know, one other thing on the casting of Nick Cage, it, just from a strategy point of view, it's, it's, it's kind of interesting because you look at Christopher Reeve and Brandon Routh and Henry Cavill and in all of those instances, you're going with someone who's largely unknown yeah. Whereas yeah, here, they, were, yeah. they went with a name. I mean, this was so Mo- huge movie star, huge at the movie time. star. And like, again, what I was alluding to. yeah. So, I mean, on the one hand, that gives you the the built in name recognition and box office appeal. But it, you know, with with Nick Cage in particular, you I think you do have a couple of hurdles. One, the fact that he doesn't look and embody like he doesn't embody what you typically would expect but like we talked about it i think it could still work but as far as getting the public on board i think that is a little bit of a hurdle and the fact i think the reason why they typically do go with unknowns is that when you when you know the person and you identify them with other things it's like harder especially for superman to have Mm -hmm. that suspension of disbelief so yeah i don't know it's just interesting to me the strategy here that um yeah you know and i don't know I don't know where the line is between, you know, the studio wanting a name versus Burton just being like, this is the best person for this. Like, I, I don't know exactly where that, where that line is in this case, but yeah, I mean, I would assume that it would have been Burton wanting him because if it was the studio, they probably would have gone with someone like Ben Affleck, you know, someone like typical, like, you know, like, pretty face actor kind of thing like whereas like that's where like i feel like it's the the burton kind of like beak like because like, i don't think they wanted michael keaton right the studio they kind of went into that in the beginning of this movie right. they were talking about how burton really wanted michael keaton because the actors that they were um like the actors that they, that they were like wanting him to get he was like, I don't get why any of these guys would need to put on a bat suit to fight crime, which like kind of makes sense. Like why, why would someone who like looks like a UFC fighter need to dress up like Batman? You know what I mean? Like, so from that perspective, like it, it kind of makes sense, you know, from where he's coming from. So like, I, again, it's just, I just, the fact that's so different is why I'm so intrigued by it, you know? Yes. Yeah. You know, at the end of the day, I, I guess ultimately where I land is from from what we know about the movie, what we've seen, what we've heard, assuming it's executed the way that we would be envisioning it based on the knowledge yeah. that we have, is it – do I think it would necessarily be my number one pick for my favorite depiction of Superman? Probably not, but would I have wanted to see it and do I think that there would have been value to it? Yes. So ultimately, yeah. you know, I, it's a shame that – and it's also just – just as a fan of Superman and a fan of movies and a fan of Superman movies, it is like heartbreaking that they went through all of this and it never yeah. happened. I, I mean, I will say this. I now this this all depends on execution, right? Like that's a huge part of this because when we were listening to the audio drama, we're we're thinking about the concept art we saw and like what we know of like the work of these people, and so we're imagining basically what this would be. So, so assuming that it's executed at like the highest level, right? I don't think that 
he would have been my favorite Superman. I think that still would be Christopher Reeve. But I think I would have liked this movie more than the Christopher Reeve movies. Because this movie was, like, full of, like, action. That, that's another thing that, like, we didn't really touch on is that this movie is full of, like, kick-ass action. Now, assuming it's executed well, right? Assuming it's not just Superman, like, throwing a punch and knocking someone back and that's it. Like, assuming it's, like, done at, like, the highest level, this could have been a really visually cool movie. And and as, like, a 10... Because this would have came out in, what, 98? 98? It would have been, like, 10 or 11, like, depending on when it fell. I would have been all in on this, you know, like I said before, I would have had all the toys, you know, they would have had a figure for each of the different suits. You know, there would have been a Brainiac figure. There would have been the skull ship thing. The Brainiac is in there. I would have had all of that shit. And like, I, I assuming it was like, you know, executed well, you know, it's funny because I know at the, at the top, I said that I, you know, if you had asked me when I was 10, I probably would have been like, Oh, I, I wouldn't be interested in that version specifically, but I don't know. I think he would have. I really think he would have. As like, we're talking about this, I think I have to walk that back a bit because, like I said, I didn't have, especially with Nick Cage, as much as I knew who he was and I had seen some of his stuff, it wasn't like I had a vision of him that was so ingrained in my head. Exactly, and, yeah. And I think that would have helped. And the fact that it was based on the death and return of Superman, it's like, no, I think that would have gone, a, I, yeah, all right. I, uh, and he fights, <laughs> fights Doomsday? No. Like, come on. Like, you would have loved this as a 10-year-old. I think you know? I would have. And I, honestly, yeah. I think I would have. Yeah. No, it's a shame. I yeah. really do hope we get an animated adaptation. I think that would be the best format for this because then it allows you, assuming he's interested, to have Nick Cage do the voice. And so at least, you know, yeah. he gets to portray the character. Although I guess he did a bit in the Teen Titans Go movie. I heard about that. Yeah, I didn't see the movie, but I heard about it. Yeah. But to do be able to do like the full on performance, I think would be really cool. Well, I, I think it's funny how you bring that up because like we were talking about the ages we, we would be at. Like it's very similar to you, like say 10 years ago, like when I was like 10, 15 years ago, like when I was in college, like like late high school through college and maybe like a couple of years out of college. The notion of Nick Cage being Superman in this movie, I would be like, fuck no, this sounds terrible. You know what I mean? But now that I'm older, like, and I just want different, like, just unique versions of it. I'm like, no, this sounds awesome. But then thinking back to when I'm a kid, too, I, I didn't have all these preconceived notions, like you're saying. So, like, I think there's a very real chance that if this came out when we were 10, this would have been our favorite version of Superman. You know, like, just like how Michael, like I said before, like, Michael Keaton is a lot of people's favorite version of Batman. And it's never going to change, no matter how good the new movies are. It's just that's the one that connected with them at that, like, very specific age when this stuff, like, just hits so hard, you know? Right. Yeah, no, I'm. De- I agree with that, and I'm definitely at the point where, yeah, it's and it, it's not. You know, I won't go so far as to say like I just want the weirdest, most offbeat take. But you, you know, <laughs> based on <laughs> yeah. what we've seen, it's like yeah, like I don't know, this would have been cool. And I don't know if people listening to this are like, you know, like the, the Christopher Walken, the Chris Rock, the Nick Cage. Like, what are these guys talking about? But I, I don't know. We've especially now fifty episodes into this podcast, it's like I've been yeah. watching and reading and rewatching and rereading like so much stuff. And I've, you know, this like larger view is really coming into focus and you see how there's room for so much. And it's like, yeah, like this would have been different, but it's like, it could have been really cool. It would have been interesting. I think it would have been very memorable. And again, Peters was a quirky character, but looking at the concept art, looking at what Burton's intention seemed to be looking at the passion and Nick Cage is a noted Superman fan for whatever that's worth. I feel like there would have been integrity to this project. Yeah. So I would yeah. have, I would have liked and, to see and it. I, again, like like with with Nick Cage, Christopher Walken, like Chris Rock. I, I feel like everyone in their head jumps to like the like the 
the most like right. <laughs> slapstick cartoony cartoonish like impression version of these of that but like it wouldn't have been that it would have been them like trying you know it wouldn't have been like chris rock and me like hey jorel like it would have been that you know it would have been like like a dead zone christopher walken you know like i don't know yeah now of course this didn't happen and then there was another attempt maybe we'll do an episode on this in the future i don't know if there's as much to really dig into but jj abrams was brought on to write a draft and that was the flyby yeah, I, I don't. I don't know anything about that except I've seen one piece of concept art that I've seen, like where like his face is sort of shadowed out. Do you know what, which one I'm talking about? Yeah, 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 yeah. That's the only thing I know about that movie is that one piece of concept art. So the same new new verse creative who did the audio dramas, they did do one on Flyby. The only so there, that is out there, and the script itself is out there. The only, I guess, the main things that I know are that in a major departure. Krypton doesn't explode in the J.J. Abrams script. There's like civil war and they send Kal-El to Earth. And then the big twist or one of the twists is that Lex is revealed to be a Kryptonian. So that's so like that's the thing. That's like when you think I, I yeah. like I've been. Yeah, I feel like I've been raving about different takes on Superman, but that feels like a little, little out there to me. Well, so but but kind of on that on that note, I feel, you know, and this is one of those things that. I don't know what sort of hard rule or test or line we could come up with. I think it's very much a case by case thing, but I, I am with you. I, you know, I look at the at the intended Superman lives, and yes, it was different in terms of the the casting they had in mind. And other than that, not a ton. I mean, I feel like in terms of the mythology, it was a pretty pretty on brand. But, but that's the thing. Like, like I was actually thinking about this earlier today because, like, because I do when we talk, I do talk a lot about how like I want things new and different and progress and like. But I think you have to keep the core the core tenets of that character. Now, I, I think for certain people, your mileage may vary, right? And what makes the core of whatever. For me, Superman's core, he's the last son of Krypton. He has some sort of love triangle with Lois, as like whether it's Clark and Lois, some aspect of that is in there. And he's a good person. Like I feel like that is like to me, the tenets of like what makes and 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 he and he fights Lex Luthor. Like Lex Luthor's his, his main antagonist. That is like to me the like if you change the costume, you change his haircut, you change like like how like his Kryptonian like heritage interacts, like like all that like detail stuff to me like is malleable enough for it, right? Up for up for change. Like, but if you, if you keep the core of like who he is, I think that's like what makes the character, you know, I think that, I think you can extrapolate that to like all comic book characters and video game characters and whatever, like all these characters that have like long sort of like histories to them. I think that's sort of where I come down on it. Yes. Well, I I've cited this before and I, I guess I always will, but that, that beautiful opening page of all-star Superman where you get the entire origin and just those few panels, you know, doomed planet, desperate scientist, last hope, kindly couple. He's the last mm-hmm. son of his planet. He's he's f- found and raised by humans, and it's the the balance between his heritage and his upbringing that that make him yeah. a good person who is willing to be that friend and use his powers in the service of mankind. And you know, yeah. uh, there are certainly other trappings, like other elements that you want to like. I would like to see him at the Deadly Planet. Certainly, the romance, the antagonism with Lex. Like, yes, yeah, so there is a little bit more than just that one page, but at its core. So flyby immediately violates even that one page. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I I think, I think he needs to be the last son of Krypton. That's like pretty integral to, 
to, to Superman to me. You know what it is? I, I, and look, I, I can't give a full assessment of Flyby because that's about the extent of what I know. But I feel like that could be a cool Elseworld story. What uh-huh. if Krypton didn't explode and he just sent here anyway and there's this war raging? I, that's fine. But if this is going to be the characters return to the big screen after more than a decade, it's like, no, I think you do want to retain as much of that core as possible. Yeah. But but then, like, you go – to me, the, the wrong way, though, like, is the Superman Returns route where it's just like so beholden to what's come before where it's like we're even gonna like make them look the same which is like crazy like they made brandon routh look like christopher reeve it's like it's mind-boggling to me that that was the choice that they went with you know yes well and i will be i will be revisiting that for the donner event well i I like how in this documentary at the beginning um john schnepp's talking to um robert Burnett, who was one of the, he was working on Superman Returns, and and Brandon, and there, there was something to the effect of like, well, I think it was Brian Singer would would bring around a, a picture of Nick Cage in the suit and say, "This is the crap you guys were gonna make." Like, yep. But it's like, but it's like I I, I I can't rationalize in my head like why they thought it was a good idea to just like make like a, like a facsimile of like the Christopher Reeve movie, but like with like less heart, like, you know what I mean? Like that's what that movie is to me is like, it's like, a, like it's, it's very strange. I'm, I'm so glad you brought that up. Cause that did jump out at me too, from the documentary that that singer would carry that around. And anytime there was pushback, he would be like, well, this is what you wanted to make. Uh, yeah. I'm going to withhold final judgment on Superman returns until I do my rewatch for the upcoming episode. Cause I've not looked at it in years. my, my view at the time when it came out and upon subsequent rewatch is basically what you just described, that we got this weird sort of quasi-remake, quasi-sequel to this previous franchise, but it didn't capture the magic or the charm of it. That was always... No, none, yeah. That was always my view. But I'm going to I'm gonna go into the rewatch with an open mind and see if I find something d- different to enjoy this. I don't know. I don't know where I'm going to come out on that, but it, it is... Don't, don't have high hopes, man. I yeah. Like... like I mean, I guess it was a while ago at this point. It was like maybe like three or four years ago when Batman versus Superman was in theaters. I was flicking through channels at Laura's house, at her parents' house, and the end of it was on when like he's on this the, the ship and he's holding the, the the planet and like the kid throws the piano and everything. And we were just watching it and because Laura had never seen it and I, and she was like, "This is like really weird." I'm like, yeah, "This is a bizarre." It's it's even weirder now. That's the thing. Like, because when, when we first saw it, I was just hyped to see Superman again. Like when it was in theaters. And like coming out of that first viewing, I was like, yeah, that was great. Like I was like kind of like riding that high of seeing it, but like going back to it now, it's like so, so many weird choices, you know? Yeah. I, I'm so glad that we did this episode for a variety of reasons, including the fact that it, it gives, I think a whole new perspective now when I go into that Superman returns viewing and knowing where it falls within the timeline of the, the, the movie development and what we got very close to with Superman lives. And then to a lesser extent with flyby that I I don't know how, how close that was ever materializing. You know, I, before John Schnepp passed away, like I said, I I watched him like every day on Collider live. And he had said that he was just kind of like this kind of, from what I remember, this kind of like spurred him to like want to dive deeper into these other like failed movies that never happened. And he was talking a lot about the George Miller justice league movie. And he had, he showed a picture of the whole cast in their costumes. Like when Adam Brody was the flash, you know? So like that would have been fascinating to see like 
what happened with that movie, you know? Because that was all fully casted up too. They had everyone ready yeah. to go. They had costumes and everything. So it's 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 wild. I mean, you look at all the stuff that we we did get, but then you think about all the stuff that came so close to happening. But I, I really, again, I thank you for kind of spurring me on to do this because it was very educational, and I there was so much I didn't know about this. I guess the last question. So anything else you want to say, please feel free. Well, okay. yeah, well, yeah, yeah. Be, be, before before yeah, yeah. we wrap up, I think just for the listeners, we should explain why this movie didn't happen. Because sure. I feel like everyone's little, like probably like, well, why didn't this amazing Nick Cage movie not happen? <laughs> they listened to us talk about it. And like, it was purely like a financial thing, right? It yeah. was like that year, Warner Brothers, they, 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 in the documentary, they show like every movie, like there's like 10 movies that, that they, they showed that like, had these huge budgets they thought were going to be huge hits and every one of them bombed like right in a row. And steel was one of them. Yeah. <laughs> our, our steel movie was one of them, but like, and it was just surrounded by like running up to the release of this movie. They were just in a really bad financial spot. They couldn't, they felt that it was a too big of a risk. So they diverted funds from this movie to make wild, wild West, right. which again, bombed, which is that's that in and of itself is crazy to me to think that like a studio is like, we think it's bigger we think it's a more secure financial investment to make an old timey Western movie than a Superman movie. Like that's, that's crazy. You know, like it's well, a with wild, wild West, you know, of course that's the punchline to the Kevin Smith story because that features the giant mechanical spider. So John Peters got his wish, but yeah, I mean, on the one hand I'm with you, it is kind of crazy to think that that would seem like a safer bet, but in fairness, the last Superman movie was the quest for peace. I mean, I feel like that was, that was such a hole to climb out of after that, that I, I mean, I, True. I guess, and yeah, Will Smith in the wild, wild west. True. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and this was, was, the, 90s, know, was the late nineties. I mean, this was, that was his this time. Was, this was, yeah, this is post men in black post independence day. This is like Will Smith, like big, biggest movie star on the planet probably at the time. Yeah. The, Followed closely by Nicolas Cage. <laughs> yeah. We we t- maybe we've already addressed this fully, but I just in case there was anything else, are there? Do you think there are any other big misconceptions about Superman Lives that that people might still have, especially if they haven't watched the documentary or or listened to the scripts or read the scripts? Hmm. Try- yeah. No. I mean, I feel like we covered it all. Like, like the 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 misconception being that would have been this like wacky like Tim Burton like. Like everything would have been black and white pinstripes and like, you know, like kooky, like hell in the bottom Carter would have been wearing like a crazy wig and stuff like, like, you know, like the, the trappings of like what people normally think of a Tim Burton movie like that wasn't part of it. And the other misconception that Nick Cage, I think looked really good in, as Superman. Like, I know he's not, we've talked about like not your traditional what you think, but like, I think people now imagine like modern Nick Cage being Superman where like, not like ripped 90s nick cage you know so yeah no right on man i'm with you and i know we we listed these at the top but for anyone who wants to dive further again it's new verse creative and that's n-e-u verse uh creative and they're on youtube and spotify you can listen to these audio dramas that they've done they've done a bunch of, of canceled projects uh where they've brought the scripts to life via you know like a radio play essentially and so they do have the Kevin Smith script that we talked about, as well as the Dan Gilroy script, you know, audio dramas of those screenplays. Uh, so if you really want to get a sense of, I mean, this is the closest you're going to get short of, you know, it, it being animated or or done in comic book form. So I do recommend those. And and of course, the John Schnapp documentary, 
uh, which will really, you know, again, you get to hear and see all of these people talking about what their intentions were for this. So if you've not checked out any or all of those, I, I do recommend them. Uh, was there anything else that we didn't talk about that you wanted to? I think we covered everything. We've been, we've been at this for like, what, like two and a half hours? Not quite, not quite that long. It's been about two hours. Yeah. <laughs> well, always a pleasure. Thank you so much. Uh, where can people find and follow you to keep up with your your art and everything? Uh, you can follow me on Instagram at vkenmarian and on Twitter at vkmarian. And you can check out modernmythologycomicart.com, who's my art representation. And if you want to get a commission, get on the commission wait list or check out original art that's for sale. Um, and yeah, that's all my plugins right now. Yeah. Right on. Well, again, thank you, Ken. Thank you to the audience. As a reminder, we are back next week with an all new episode looking at JLA Rock of Ages and Final Crisis, both by Grant Morrison. And then in two weeks, Ken will be back for our big 50th episode bash and the kickoff to our five part Richard Donner event. So there's a lot of really great stuff coming up. I hope you will continue to tune in. Make sure you're subscribed via, via your audio podcast platform of choice. If you enjoy the show, please leave a rating or review. It's always very much appreciated. And as always, remember, it's about what you do. It's about action. One action I hope you will take is to consider joining my Patreon community. My exclusive Lois and Clark, The New Adventures of Superman rewatch podcast is available now at the $1 level. Many more rewards are available too including a robust back catalog of bonus podcasts. All pledges come with a money-back guarantee. Thank you to all patrons for enabling me to produce this show.